Audio Jungle. Welcome to Tech News. My name is Adriel Kiriwi. First, the headlines. Bugatti showcased its first electric scooter. Tesla in 13 countries could be remotely operated without the owner's knowledge, as tweeted by a German teenager. Indonesian student becomes a millionaire selling selfies as NFTs on OpenSea Marketplace. Mars has some Earth-like weather, but no rainbows said NASA scientist. Plus, Singapore Central Bank issues guidelines to discourage crypto trading by public. Details shortly after the break. Welcome back. Thank you for staying with us. Make sure you like, share and subscribe to the channel. Now the news in detail. Bugatti, the French car manufacturer that is renowned throughout the world for manufacturing super sports cars of innovative technology, unveiled its first electric scooter, e-scooter, capable to run at the top speed of up to 30 kilometers per hour. Bugatti has developed first of its kind e-scooter after collaboration with the American company Bitech International. New e-scooter from Bugatti that runs entirely on electricity is equipped with a 700-watt electric motor. E-scooter rider can accelerate up to 30 km per hour and charge the complete electric battery within four hours from any available public charging outlet, including household. The body of the electric scooter is made up of magnesium alloy and weighs only 15.8 kg. Bugatti e-scooter commuter not only can use an onboard computer, but can also turn on LED headlights at the night or inside the tunnel and also use parking lights while parking e-scooter in public parking spaces. Recently, 19-year-old German teenager named David Colombo, IT security specialist, owner of startup company Colombo Te Technology, claimed through its Twitter account that it is now possible for him to remotely operate 25-plus Tesla electric cars, e-cars, in 13 countries without the owner's knowledge. IT security specialist further tweeted about how he could disable sentry mode, open doors or windows, and access keyless driving from his location. Initially, he tried to reach out to Tesla but couldn't do that, then he spread his message through the social media platform, Twitter. When broadcasters from Bloomberg contacted him for proof, he declined to share the facts and said that disclosing evidence at the moment could be leaked. And this will pose threats, a serious security threat that could be hacked by hackers. So he would only reveal the Tesla vulnerabilities to the company's representatives. In the last one year, 
several elements of the crypto space have witnessed a boom in adoption and one of these are digital collectibles called non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Sultan Gustav Al-Ghazali, a 22-year-old Indonesian college student, has made the most of it, churning out over a million dollars by selling NFTs. The computer science student from Semarang, Indonesia, converted nearly 1,000 of his selfies taken over the course of five years into NFTs and sold them on OpenSea Marketplace. Welcome back. We apologize for the break in transmission. In a bid to be able to revisit his college days later, Gazzoli had taken a rather experientialist selfies, sitting or standing in front of his computer each day between the ages of 18 and 22. He turned these images into NFTs and put them on OpenSea for sale, pricing each at $3. Gozali's NFT collection reached a total trade volume of 317 Ethereum or $1,041,325, making him a millionaire overnight. NASA scientist Mark Lemon, while explaining the reasons for no rainbows on planet Mars, said that clouds made of water are present in a thin atmosphere of planet Earth and many of us saw the image taken from Perseverance rover with an arc across the sky, but it was not a rainbow, but a lens flare. Lens flare usually has been seen even in brightly lit laboratory images, so pointing out towards rainbow clarifies that rainbows needed more water so that they could reflect like a substance. Rainbows would require a lot of water, and unfortunately, Mars has no sufficient water. Although there exist clouds in the atmosphere of Mars, but it lacks dry carbon dioxide, unlike Earth. <coughs> the Monetary Authority of Singapore, MAS, on Monday issued guidelines that limit cryptocurrency trading service providers from promoting their services to the general public as part of a bid to shield retail investors from potential risk. Singapore is a popular location for cryptocurrency companies due to a comparatively clear regulatory and operating environment and is among the forerunners globally in developing a formal licensing framework. But the city-state authorities have repeatedly warned that trading in digital payment tokens, DPT or cryptocurrency, is highly risky and not suitable for the general public as they are subject to sharp speculative swings. They can only market or advertise on their own corporate websites, mobile applications or official social media accounts. And that's all for now on Tech News. Till we meet again, my name is Adrian Kiriwi. Thank you for listening.
Welcome back to Paul's Tech News. January is halfway over, and I still can't tell what kind of a year 2022 is going to be. I mean, we still have horrible things from prior years carrying over, as reflected in this week's news stories. NVIDIA taunting us with ever more expensive and unattainable GPUs. CES attendees discovering that the whole stays in Vegas thing does not apply to COVID. And GTA 6, which could provide us all with a blessed escape from this cruel reality, is still likely two years off, if we're lucky. On the plus side though, there is hope for an easing of the shortages later in the year. New chip fabs seem to be popping up everywhere, and Razer got called out on the BS marketing they've been doing for their RGB face mask. And perhaps most importantly, you're here, right now, watching this show. Presumably because there's no possible better way you could be spending your time, but I think as a result, you're gonna end up smarter, and a bunch of other good things are gonna happen too, and I also might occasionally make a joke. Not right now, though. Excellent! We begin this week with NVIDIA, who tried to pull a fast one on us all with Tuesday's launch of the RTX 3080 12GB, a slightly upgraded RTX 3080 with two more gigs of VRAM, a handful of extra CUDA cores, and a bit more memory bandwidth. It also bumps the power up to 350 watts, but there were precious few media reviews at launch. Those who did discuss it seemed a bit miffed too, and the reasons why were best articulated by Angry Steve over at Hardware Unboxed. You see, it all goes back to the September 2020 launch of the original RTX 3080, which had an MSRP of $700, which was fantastic. It was well received by the press, and it was clear that Nvidia was comfortable selling the GA102 GPU-based card for that much money. Shortly thereafter though, GPU mining profitability spiked, card supply dried up, and we've seen a shortage situation ever since, with 10 gig 3080s regularly selling for $2,000 or more. Nvidia probably greatly regrets that $700 list price though, as it's frequently been used as a metric to compare GPU value before and after the outsized influence of cryptocurrency mining. And Nvidia has been seeking ways to leverage the shortage situation and sell their GA102 GPUs for more money ever since. It started with the RTX 3080 Ti, which listed for $1,200, even though it was only about 11% faster. And while it's certainly legitimate to argue that they're a business doing what businesses do and selling their product for what the market will bear, They've taken things a step further with the RTX 3080 12 gig. The top two grievances are that there's no stated MSRP for the new version, and that Nvidia withheld pre-launch drivers from the few reviewers who did have cards. In an apparent attempt to soften the launch day criticism, which they would have preferred went by with as little fanfare as possible, so the replacement RTX 3080, which we can now see is listing on EVGA's store for $1,250 to $1,300, could sell out immediately to scalpers with minimal finger pointing as to who is now profiting most from the shortage. You'd have to assume that even an undisclosed official MSRP would be less than the $1,200 that the 3080 Ti lists for, but since 12 gig 3080s are already selling for more than that, they've even been hemmed in by that GPU's MSRP, which launched last June. So we get it, there's no Founders Edition, no official MSRP, and likely very few, if any, GA102 dies that Samsung's fabs produce will now go into 10 gig 3080s. They'll go into 12 gig ones that cost a lot more. Reviews are now in, and big surprise, Nvidia managed to ration the card's resources just enough 
to slot performance in beneath the 3080 Ti and above the OG 3080, even though it was just a 10% gap between those two cards already, which is another reason why this card was not needed by anyone except Nvidia who wanted to correct their original pricing mistake. Angry Steve was right to be angry. But what can any of us actually do about it? The frustrating answer is not much. We could gloat over rumors that surfaced Friday about troubles with the upcoming 3090 Ti, which was supposedly going to launch on the 27th, but has now had its embargo canceled while AIB partners were ordered to halt production, as reported by Tweaktown and confirmed by videocards.com. Issues with the BIOS and hardware, it's said. Gloating probably won't do us much good though, but don't buy into the argument that Nvidia should be doing this because the money would have just gone to scalpers anyway. That helps anchor these prices so they remain high even after the shortage subsides. I think the thing we really need though is patience and hope for another market shift like what happened after the last GPU bubble popped in 2018. Countless used GPUs flooding the market for well below MSRP, which I will happily recommend to new builders over whatever the latest newly launched card is if that happens again in the near future. Speaking of Hopium-based fantasy scenarios, Nvidia also says that GPU shortages will ease in the second half of 2020, 2022? Did I? Yeah, uh, perhaps I judged them too harshly. As reported by Seeking Alpha, Colette Kress, chief financial officer of Nvidia, spoke at the 24th annual Needham Growth Conference and said, throughout all of calendar 2021, we have seen strong demand for GeForce and it continues to remain stronger than our overall supply. We feel better about our supply situation as we move into the second half of the calendar year 2022. That would seem to indicate that Team Green has plans to ramp up output for the GeForce RTX 40 series, codenamed Ada Lovelace, which is expected to be manufactured on TSMC's N5 node, which already has a good three-year track record. And one more bit of NVIDIA news, more specifically an update on the NVIDIA-based EVGA GPUs that were stolen en route from San Francisco to Southern California back in October. They have been found and are now safely being sold in Vietnam by the Kong Nguyen PC store, Ho Chi Minh City Branch, at least according to a Facebook post from a store customer whose 3080 Ti couldn't be registered with EVGA since it was on the ban list from last year's robbery. It was at least discounted though and sold with a limited one month warranty, so we'll see if EVGA's APAC team follows up with the store and if there's any more to this story. And hey, at least they didn't all just end up in a mining farm. Let's quickly dip into some AMD news next. After the Zen 4 CES announcements, it was inevitable that the chips would start to appear in the wild. But this was pretty quick. Two engineering sample CPUs popped up in the public database of the Milky Way at Home project early this week, which appear to be Zen 4-based early Ryzen 7000 series samples. One was an 8-core and one was 16-core, and they have 1,024 kilobytes of L2 cache per core double what Zen 3-based Ryzen 5000X CPUs currently ship with. Because the CPUs were paired with an RTX 2080, TechSpot assumes the entries came from an OEM rather than AMD themselves, and there's not much info beyond that. Expect more leaks like this as 2022 progresses though, since Zen 4 Ryzen 7000 CPUs are expected in the second half of the year, along with the new Socket LGA 1718 AM5 platform. And let's round out the main part of the show with a handful of stories about Intel, starting with a leak about their upcoming Raptor Lake CPUs, the follow-up to Alder Lake expected later this year. 
At CES, Intel showed an early sample of Raptor Lake running Windows, and so it makes sense that the Intel boot log already has entries for the new CPUs. Specs listed show a 24-core, 32-thread CPU, which is presumed to be an i9-13900K with 16 efficiency cores and 8 performance cores, doubling the E-core count versus the 12900K. This aligns with a leak from early December that showed the same configuration, although it was an early sample just running at 1.8 GHz, which is a bit slow for an Intel CPU. It does look like they're doubling down on those E-cores though, which you might think is a Raptor-like mistake. But while you were staring at those P-cores, they just stared right back. And that's when the attack comes, not from the front, but from the sides. And the other Raptor E-cores that you didn't even know were there. Clever girl. Uh, Joe, can we just make a note that I was the first to make a clever girl joke about Raptor Lake and anyone who does it after now is just copying me? Thanks. Der Bauer, famed PC overclocker, tech YouTuber, and answer to the question, where Bauer got his hands on what appears to be an unreleased 56-core Intel Xeon processor, an engineering sample from the Sapphire Rapids line that's not expected until later in 2022. He picked it up on eBay and proceeded to do what he does best, delitting the Socket 4677 CPU to reveal what was beneath the heat spreader, which was simply labeled Xeon VPro XCC Q QWP3. The answer was four compute dies, which were connected via Intel's Embedded Multi-Die Interconnect Bridge, or EMIB technology, which totally doesn't use glue like AMD's Infinity Fabric probably does. Roman would have loved to fire up the CPU rather than destroying it to see its innards, but apparently the CPUs are much easier to come by right now than the LGA4677 motherboards, which you kind of need in order to run the CPU. Intel had some internal changes going on this week as well, with client computing group lead Gregory G.B. Bryant announcing that he would be leaving the company for another opportunity, hot on the heels of his CES 2022 keynote presentation. I will say this though, if you're going to leave a company, the beginning of the year is the classy time to do so, after handling the mess that usually accompanies the holiday season and Q4. Intel's new CCG head and woman who really doesn't have time for your shit today, Michelle Johnston, <laughs> Michelle Johnston Holthouse has not indicated if she will also use an amicable acronym in place of her given name as MJH doesn't ro really roll off the tongue quite the same way, but she has a long and proven track record at Intel joining Team Blue 25 years ago in 1996. She will also be joined by a new social media head as well. Leslie Douglas, as reported by Dr. Ian Cutris, and Leslie has already proved her social media acumen by including both emojis and a hashtag in her announcement post. Hopefully she can convince CEO Pat Gelsinger to do a TikTok dance next and really win over those youth demographics. Digitimes reported Thursday that TSMC has updated their three nanometer fab plans, promising Intel additional manufacturing capacity by repurposing an R&D facility in northern Taiwan to be another N3 fab just for Intel. This will allow them to separate Intel's orders from Apple's, keeping information regarding products from each manufacturer secure from the other. This is both an indication of Intel's expanding plans for chip production in coming years, as well as their willingness to enter a long-term partnership with TSMC, who is technically a rival in terms of chip production. TSMC's cutting-edge fabs have proven very successful though, which is why they are outperforming their growth targets and planning further expansion in 2022. Intel also has expansion plans though, and we are apparently on the cusp of an official announcement that should make Ohio residents happy. The location has been chosen for a $20 billion facility that will employ 3,000 people in the greater Columbus area. 
Rumors have been swirling about this one for a while, and most recently, the city of New Albany annexed 3,190 acres from neighboring Jersey Township to expand the New Albany International Business Park, where Google, Amazon, and Facebook have data centers. Seems like a spot where an Intel factory could fit right in. Plus, it's in Licking County, which is way better than Sucking County, and semiconductor wafers are supposed to be very flat, just like Ohio, so this all makes a lot of sense to me. What doesn't make sense is tech briefs. How can they be so packed with information and fun while also being so brief? We'll probably never know. PCI SIG, the governing body for PCI Express, is packing in more data than ever with their first release of the PCI Express 6.0 standard. 64 giga transfers per second per lane for a maximum theoretical bandwidth of 256 gigabytes per second in a full by 16 slot. 256 gigabytes per second. That's like this whole SSD, or roughly 4% of your hidden porn collection, going from here to there in one second. This will mostly help data centers and stuff, but it just really blows the mind. I can't even think that fast. Razer had to think fast when they got called out by Naomi Wu just after CES, where Razer's new Zephyr Pro RGB face mask won some awards and attention. Wu, aka Real Sexy Cyborg on Twitter, pointed out that the mask is not N95 rated. Only the filters appear to meet the particulate standards, and since N95 is an official certification granted by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH, Razer was misleading people with the term N95 grade. After complaints gained traction, Razer removed all references to N95 grade filter from their marketing materials and emailed buyers to let them know that the Zephyr is not a certified N95 mask. Thanks to Naomi for calling this out, and she also suggested showing this video where she originally tried out the Razer Zephyr back in November and used her engineering skills to build a much more functional version. This video is linked in the video's description. Samsung mysteriously no-showed to their own event, an Exynos 2200 launch announcement that they teased at the end of December, which was expected to take place on Tuesday. The day came and went with nothing from Samsung, which is just a bit odd for a manufacturer of their size. A day later, though, Samsung decided to stop ghosting the world and told Business Korea, we are planning to unveil the new application processor at the time of launching a new Samsung smartphone, which is probably the Galaxy S22, which will probably get announced at the Samsung Galaxy Unpacked 2022 event, which will probably be in early February. Or maybe there's some trouble causing a delay with Samsung's new flagship. That's completely unsubstantiated information, but maybe. Also unrelated, about 70 CES 2022 attendees from South Korea brought COVID-19 home from the show and had to be quarantined. That includes executives and staff from major South Korean companies, 20 reportedly from Samsung, and I'm sure none of them were the ones who were supposed to give that Exynos 202200 announcement. I didn't even say that out loud, so I'm not sure why you're thinking it. You should stop it. Stop that now. Speaking of stopping things, police are theoretically supposed to stop crime, but not in this hilarious story about cops who would rather hunt Pokemon than pursue criminals while on the beat. The goofy officers were recorded in 2017 hunting an errant Snorlax in Pokemon Go when one of those pesky robbery-in-progress calls came through. Ah, screw it, they said, and continued to drive their police cruiser around collecting digital cartoon characters. 
just adorable. Speaking of video games and cops, GTA 6 will probably feature both of those things if it ever launches, and while some have given up hope on the series due to recent missteps made by Rockstar, there is now hope that the game might actually launch in the next two years, if financial estimates made by parent company Take-Two are any indication. They're expecting strong growth through 2024, optimistically enough that analysts say only a GTA release could make them so confident in their money-making abilities in that time frame. And the good news is they're talking about fiscal years, meaning that if true, the actual launch could be anywhere from the beginning of April 2023 to the end of March 2024. April 2023 is only about 15 months away. All they need to do now is promise a PC launch at the same time as the consoles, and it might be enough to make us forget how dirty they did us all with the whole GTA, the trilogy, the definitive, definitive edition remastered thing. Some wounds will never fully heal though. So there you have it guys, tech news for the week, and I hope y'all are having a great start to 2022 so far. Your feedback is always welcome, so please feel free to leave me a comment down below. While you're down there, all the articles I talked about today are linked in the description. If you're interested in further reading, you can also click the like button. If you enjoyed this video, check out my store at paulshardware.net for a selection of excellent merchandise options, t-shirts, hoodies, beer sets, and more. And subscribe to my channel if you'd like to see more videos like this one in the future. Thanks again everyone, and we'll see you next week. Audio Jungle. know Mitch served as the 61st mayor of New Orleans. Under his leadership, New Orleans is widely recognized as one of the nation's greatest comeback stories, recovering from Hurricane Katrina and the BP oil spill. Mitch served as president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, was named Public Official of the Year in 2015, and was voted America's top turnaround mayor in a survey of mayors in 2016. Prior to serving as mayor, uh, he served two terms as lieutenant governor of Louisiana and in the Louisiana House of Representatives for 16 years. As the president's infrastructure coordinator, Mitch oversees the largest long-term investment in America's infrastructure and competitiveness in nearly a century. I wanted to have him come speak with all of you following our announcement on Friday of more than $27 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure law to fix an estimated 15,000 bridges across the country and ahead of the president's meeting later this week with the infrastructure implementation task force, which he co-chairs. With that, I will turn it over. He's agreed to take a few uh, questions before he has to go build some more bridges. I worked on that all day. Go ahead. Good morning, everybody. So this is what this room looks like. I've been wondering for a while. It's nice to see you. Happy New Year to you. Um, my name is Mitch. Uh, the president asked me to help him build a better America. I said yes. I hope the people of America agree to because it's going to take all of us to get this done. Uh, when President Biden came into office just one year ago, he pledged to use the power of the presidency to help everyday Americans, to bring people together, and to rebuild our country. For decades, we just talked about Infrastructure Week, but President Biden reached across the aisle and in a bipartisan way actually got it done. Promises made, promises kept. Let me tell you, every week 
now is going to be infrastructure week, except the difference is we're actually going to build stuff. With a bipartisan infrastructure law, President Biden is delivering the largest investment in infrastructure in a generation. That means in most of our lives. A little more than 60 days ago, our team hit the ground running to deliver results. We have now convened the task force made up of cabinet members a total of six times. This Thursday will be our seventh, and the president will be with us. We're discussing hard questions, seeking to flesh out the tough stuff first. I'm a firm believer in running to the fire, not away from it. We're breaking down silos across agencies on guidelines, on permitting, on hiring. This is a one-team, one-fight mission, and we're going to operate in that way. We also need good partners. The fact of the matter is that most of the building will actually be done by the states, by the cities, by the counties, by the tribal leaders. That's why our team and me personally have been reaching out extensive outreach to state and local officials. At this point, we have reached out to all 50 governors and their key staff. I have spoken to hundreds of elected officials, uh, and we have gotten a fantastic response from them all. As you know by now, we have asked states to appoint infrastructure coordinators, which we think will help foster cross-agency collaboration and make it easier for them to get problems solved very quickly. Already, states like Delaware and New Mexico have appointed coordinators, and states like Arkansas and Michigan are setting up interagency task forces. Our team is here to be problem solvers, to deliver, to build a team, and to help tell the story. Ultimately, we want to help people take advantage of this great opportunity to build a better America. Now, as a country, we haven't spent this amount of money on infrastructure in generations. So we're talking about how to do it with accountability and transparency on time, on task, on budget, spending taxpayer dollars both wisely and well. Earlier today, I convened the inspectors general of federal agencies involved in the implementation of the law, letting them know we want to do this in a partnership, just like the president did when he was the vice president and he led the Recovery Act process, as the president has expected from his team since day one, including the implementation of ARP. As the president has made clear, results and accountability go hand in hand. To deliver results now and in the years to come, the federal government must undertake this work in a manner that is deserving of the public's trust. So we're going to lean forward. Stewardship of public dollars is a high priority. But I want to level set. This infrastructure work in general is not a one-time economic stimulus. It is not a race to see how many ribbons we can cut before the end of the year. Doing this is going to require balance. It's going to require order. We are definitely going to go fast, but we are not going to hurry, and we are going to get it right. On the nuts and bolts, we're on the right track. As the President laid out last week, we've made real progress. You've seen the announcement, rebuilding roads, ports, and airports. We're making progress on delivering high-speed Internet to every American. We're making progress on ensuring water systems deliver clean water by replacing lead pipes. And, of course, on Friday, the President rolled out the massive $27-point billion allocation to states to fix over 15,000 bridges, the largest bridge program in American history. You see, bridges connect us. They connect people, the movement of goods. They connect communities. They connect the country. With this investment, President Biden is creating a bridge to the future, a pathway to win, a pathway for all of us to win. And today, we have another great announcement. The Department of Interior is announcing a new interagency program for cleaning up 
Orphaned Wells, a key initiative of the bipartisan infrastructure law. The law includes $4.7 billion to clean up orphaned well sites, plugging, remediation, and restoration activities. So what does this mean for the people of America? Millions of us, millions, live within a mile of hundreds of thousands of orphaned and abandoned wells that leak and spew. These wells jeopardize public health and safety by contaminating groundwater, seeping toxic chemicals, chemicals emitting harmful pollutants, including methane. This well capping program also creates jobs and will revitalize rural economies in places where people are directly affected by a transitioning economy. And like so many of these issues we face, cleaning it up will take an all-of-government approach. Interior Secretary Deb Holland is leading this effort in close partnership with the Department of Agriculture, EPA, and the Department of Energy, and already 26 states have asked for fundings to take advantage of this opportunity to clean up this mess. Secretary Holland told me the other day a story about a school she visited where children had tissues in their nostrils due to constant nosebleeds, a result of contamination. Can you imagine having our children have to learn in this kind of environment? It has gone on for quite a long time. That's why we're doing this, real results where people live and where it really matters. Cleaning up communities, fighting climate change, creating new and better jobs, and building a bridge to a future economy, it's a really consequential effort. And later this week, there will be more announcements to come. In closing, let me just say, the President has been clear in his charge to me. Build a better America without unnecessary bureaucracy and delay, while at the same time doing what is difficult for the sake of what is right. And so better, as we have said many times, means creating good middle-class jobs, investing in American manufacturing, and building capacity right here at home, supporting disadvantaged and underserved communities so that no one and no community is left behind, advancing climate resilience and sustainability so that we can be better prepared and ready for whatever is coming our way. All of this will make us stronger and better, reduce costs for the middle-class families, and help us compete. This is what building a better America looks like for all of us. Thank you. Jen, back to you. All right. Uh, Jeff, go ahead. Mr. Mayor, uh, thank you very much. Um, I was wondering if, um, if you could tell us what the response from some states um, in your old neck of the woods has been. We've seen many federal programs, Obamacare, one example, other things. Some red state governors have been resistant. Are you seeing a different kind of response on things like infrastructure, which the programs of which are popular, but the uh, administration isn't necessarily? And um, just give us a time frame of when you think some um, of these ribbon cuttings, I know that's not the metric, but when will they be happening? Anything this year? Yeah, Jeff, thank you so much for that. Uh, a very wise person said, you know, even if they vote no, vote no they want the dough. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that's absolutely true, especially on infrastructure. As I said, I, I have personally spoke to over 40 governors, three that chiefs of staff, the others uh, we have been contacted through staff. I've talked to a number of Republican governors, all of whom, uh, in the reddest of red states, were very welcoming. They were very appreciative that the president had asked the call. Um, we clearly acknowledged with each other that we may have differences of opinion on other issues, but on building roads and bridges and airs and airports and clean water and broadband, you know, 75 percent, 80 percent of the people of America want these things to happen, and the governors have committed to work with us 
to actually get it done. You mentioned that uh, in my neck of the woods. I'm from the state of Louisiana, as you know. We have gotten beaten to death by Katrina, Rita, Ike, Gustav, the National Recession, the BP oil spill, and a bucket load of other stuff. We always wonder when the locusts are coming. Um, and we have had, we have had uh, interaction, as I was lieutenant governor, with a Republican governor who I served with and a Democratic governor. In both of those instances, bipartisanship really is at the forefront of these initiatives. There are going to be some differences, but at the end of the day, there really is common ground, and I feel very good about um, the, the willingness to lean forward and to do the things that all of our constituents need, irrespective of what party that they're in. In terms of turning dirt quickly, as I said to you, to level set with everybody in this room, because you will ask me about this from time to time, can you hurry up? When's the money going to get it to the ground? When, when are the first ribbon cuttings? First of all, this is very different from the American Recovery Program. This is a long-term investment in rebuilding America better. And so there are a lot of these programs that are actually new. Many of them are not. This happens in two ways. Some of this is through formula funding that has been set. Every governor has received an indication of what the states are going to receive for the next five years. And that's across whoever's sitting in the governor's chair so they can start planning today and actually start breaking ground as soon as they're ready to do that. The other part of this bill is competitive grants. Some of those are going to take a little bit of time to set up. My expectation is there's some, there's some projects that you'll see people turn the dirt on uh, indefinitely the spring or the fall. Which ones they are, I can't actually point to you right now, but there's no reason why that shouldn't happen, especially if some of the projects have been in, in the line for some period of time. To that point, you know, the president promised shovel-ready projects. The administration hasn't yet been able to, to identify which of those projects might be getting underway soon. When will we get a better sense of what projects are coming? I can't give you an exact date, but as, as I said to you, it, with the announcements that have happened in the first 60 days, and you have a list of what those announcements are, so I don't need to repeat them, but you remember the investments that we made in ports and the investment that we just made in bridges and the ones that we sent out, the ones that Michael Regan sent out on clean water and clean air. The governors now have this money. On top of that, some of this money is fungible from the American Recovery Plan as well. So as soon as the governors and the legislatures decide where this money is going to go, and they do it with appropriate attention to equity, climate, using American products and, and other things of that nature, um, those projects shouldn't take long. However, it takes a long time to build a bridge. You know, you don't build a bridge in a day. Now, sometimes people in this town know that you can tear down things a lot quicker than you can build them, uh, and they work hard to do that. In this instance, we're going to take time and do it right, um, but we're going to do it as quickly as we possibly can. Julie? Yeah, thanks, uh, Mayor. I'm hey, curious Jay. about the uh, $66 billion for Amtrak. What is the process looking like in terms of, of spending uh, those funds? Again, on, on the timeline, when, when do you think that, that uh, those dollars will get out, and is it going to be in terms of figuring out which projects, I know they have like uh, you know planning that Amtrak does, and a lot of it's focused on that northeast corridor uh, uh, that travels up the northeast coast. You know, is that going to be a process that Amtrak itself uh, figures out what they're going to spend, or is there going to be input also from the the administration, the White House? How does that kind of work? Well, first of all, we're going to all figure it out together. Yeah. You can count on that. Uh, secondly, just to to make you aware. Um, of the scope of this project. It's 1.2 trillion. There are 14 agencies plus some that have some level of involvement in many of these plans and programs. It takes three or four agencies to coordinate. And then there are some independent agencies, and Amtrak is one of those. As you noticed, uh, they have $66 billion to do a really, really big job. And of course, you won't be surprised to know the President has a special interest in trains. 
um, and he will talk to you about it for a very, very long time, and he knows more about it than many engineers uh, in an unbelievable way. We've started those conversations with Amtrak. You have rightly noted that the Northeastern Corridor is the one that needs immediate attention. The President, however, has also indicated that he's really interested in trying to make sure that we look at where the connections are that connect moving people that's cheaper, faster, um, and is also climate frenzy. So we're in the process of, of, of kind of putting that together, um, and we'll have a plan in the, in the not-too-distant future. Is that something that it could be started this year, or, or more likely something? I think a lot, again, I don't want to speak specifically for Antrac. It's an independent agency. There are many things that can be started right now. Um, and as, as I have said to you, in some of these uh, models that we have in some formulas, that money has actually already been indicated and sent out of the door. So that's just going to be a matter of administrative uh, work that we have to do. Thanks. Nancy, this sure. has to be the last one. Go ahead. Hey, Thanks, Mitch. Um, based on what you've seen so far, how many state governments have the capacity already to evaluate this huge number of projects all at once and determine which ones are most worthy of the funding. Because as we saw, for right. example, with the American Rescue Plan, you might be very organized here at the federal level, but if they don't have the staffing and the know-how and the capacity at the state level, there will be bottlenecks. Great. That is a fantastic question, and thank you for asking us. As you heard me say throughout this talk, it's all going to be about balance. How do you go fast and how do you get it right? How do you really try to do the right thing, but at the same time not go too slow? How do you deal with actually getting money to the ground quickly and making sure that people have the capacity to use it? Let me say this again to all of us who are, who are younger than 80 years old. You have not seen this in our lifetime. Um, and when we have tried to do this in the past, because we haven't spent a lot of time building up what I call downline logistics. You'll hear me say this many, many times. Sometimes up here in Washington, they, they want to create a cow, and when it gets down to the ground, it looks like a pig. And the point is to make sure that what we're trying to do down here gets down to the ground with the people from the ground up, understanding it, knowing it, analyzing and working in partnership with them. One of the things that should be obvious to anybody in this country is that we have a capacity problem on the ground. Notwithstanding the current circumstance that we're in, even if the world were perfect, you have to say to yourself, are we ready to build this much stuff this fast? And the answer is if you, if you triage it appropriately, if you plan appropriately, if you run to the fire, and one of the fires is, do we have enough people? Do we have enough materials? And if we don't, how do we create workforce training programs? How do we build capacity? How do we manufacture products here? And you understand that this is a five to 10 year cycle. You can actually move into it if you do it intentionally and with thought. So to answer your very specific question, um, there are some states that have been in this business for quite a long time and have moved big stuff. And they're obviously more prepared than others. One of the great challenges and one of the great missions the president gave us, because, and it falls under the umbrella of equity and climate, what about these small indigenous communities that don't have the capacity to apply for a grant? What happens if they get a grant? Do they have the ability to spend the money? And our team has raised that up, all of our agencies, and says we've got to run to that fire, and we have to start building capacity on the ground level, and then how actually are we going to do that? What does workforce training like? What does the partnership with uh, community and technical colleges look like? How is labor going to build apprenticeship programs to lift up people of color who have not been involved in this interest? And how do you create this virtuous cycle of success and moving in one direction? This is why, back to Jeff's questions earlier, if everybody cooperates, if everybody saves their, 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 their fire for all of these hot button issues that, that we all tend to disagree with, and don't focus that on infrastructure because there's not a Republican or a Democratic way to fill a, a damn pothole, then we ought to be able to get all of this stuff done more quickly 
um, and, and, and better. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what a better America looks like for President Biden. Thank you all, all right, very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate thank you. it. Thank you. Invited back anytime, as I always like to say. Okay. Um, all right, this a little bit better this time. Okay, uh, just have a couple of items for all of you at the top. I have a bit of a hard out at a quarter of or 10 of, so we'll get around to as many people as possible. Um, I know that many of you are tracking that we are uh, about to reach our uh, one-year mark here um, in the administration, and we just wanted to note uh, a couple of the points of progress uh, that have been made that you'll hear the president talk more about and members of our administration also talk more about over the coming days. And you know how we love charts around here? So we have some charts that lay out a pretty stark contrast between where we started and where we are now. Uh, so just to highlight a couple of pieces. Um, during the president's first year, we saw the most dramatic change in our economy of anywhere in the world. It was the biggest year of job growth in American history, and it was the direct result of actions taken by President Biden and Democrats in Congress, including the American Rescue Plan. The vaccination effort, it helped fund, and now the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, and you can see uh, the economic data there uh, quite starkly. I mean, look at the initial unemployment claims. They're on average, uh, they're 800, they were at 812,000 a year ago. They're now at 210,000, the unemployment rate and obviously job creation the year before the president took office and the last year. As it relates to COVID, uh, if we look to a year ago, only 1% of adults were fully vaccinated. 74% of adults are fully vaccinated now. In terms of at-home tests on the market, now we've talked about tests a lot, zero on the market a year ago. Now we have 375 million people per month, or tests are distributed, I should say, per month. 46% uh, of schools were open a year ago, now over 95%. Uh, this is progress that's been made. Obviously, there's more work that's going to be done that needs to be done. The job is not done yet, uh, but we have a plan to address the challenges we're facing, uh, and we're going to stay at it. With that, Colleen, why don't you kick us off? Okay, thank well, uh, as you all know, the, the negotiation or the uh, debate is starting in the Senate. Um, the president's view is that the American people deserve to see uh, where their leaders stand on protecting their fundamental rights. That is a reason to move forward with this debate uh, and this vote uh, this week. And his view is also that opposing rule changes to make the protection of voting rights a reality is supporting an, an obstacle to protecting voting rights. It's part of the important process. In terms of uh, what, so we will continue to, and, and you've heard the president say, and I'm sure he will reiterate for you if anyone asks him tomorrow, that until his last breath, he will be fighting for the protection of voting rights. And that means conversations and fighting to get legislation at the federal level through is going to continue. And those conversations will continue. I will note that in addition, uh, we have also been working uh, with organizations all across this country who are building diverse coalitions to pass voter 
voter laws and push back against those that make it harder to vote and threaten free and fair administration of elections, in addition to doing the critical work to register and educate voters. These organizations have built grassroots leadership at the state level. Uh, they're providing training, policy research, messaging guidance, and directing organizing to register voters, deploy voter protection teams in states that are rolling back voter protection. I'd also note the Vice President knows Americans at every level are focused on this fight, and she will continue engaging and leading this effort uh, with activist policy leaders and elected officials around the country. But right now our focus is on the debate, on the vote that is uh, going to be happening, and on the fact that it will highlight very clearly for the American people uh, who stands with them and protecting their voting rights and who stands against it. Um, what do you hope to achieve with the Secretary of State heading not only to Ukraine, but then later to Geneva to meet with um, Lavrov, especially since, you know, talks with, over Ukraine aren't exactly going all that well right now? Um, well, let me just give you a, a little bit of an update on where things stand, and obviously you're following this closely, but this morning Secretary Blinken uh, spoke with Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. They agreed to meet in Geneva, uh, as, you, as you noted. At that meeting, uh, Secretary Blinken will urge Russia to take immediate steps to de-escalate. Uh, he will also fly to Kyiv to consult with President Zelensky and Ukraine's leaders and to Germany for consultations. As you also know, there is a congressional delegation that is also uh, on their way there. Um, and it's a note, it's an, I would note that that just indicates that support for Ukraine has always been a bipartisan issue, and we welcome that. But where things stand right now, President Putin has created this crisis by amassing 100,000 Russian troops along Ukraine's borders. This includes moving Russian forces into Belarus recently uh, for joint exercises and conducting additional exercises on Ukraine's eastern border. So let's be clear. Our view is this is an extremely dangerous situation. We're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack in Ukraine. Uh, and what Secretary Blinken is going to go do uh, is highlight very clearly there is a diplomatic path forward. It is the choice of President Putin and the Russians to make whether they are going to suffer severe economic consequences or not. Uh, go ahead. Oh, let me go around to people who have questions. Trevor. Uh, could you, when you're talking about um, kind of this meeting that uh, the Secretary of State is going to have with Sergei Lavrov, what is the, um, is, is there an expectation that he's going to provide some sort of response to the issues that were raised in the uh, January 10th uh, meeting? Oh, well, uh, again, I don't have anything for you to specifically preview on the behind the scenes negotiations and discussions, but our position uh, has been crystal clear uh, from the beginning, the position of the President and the Secretary of State, that there are two paths. There's a diplomatic path forward. We, we certainly hope they take that path. There's the other path. It is up to the Russians to determine which path they're going to take, and the consequences will be severe if they don't take the diplomatic path. There has been reporting out of Europe that um, uh, essentially this idea that's been floated about taking Russia out of the SWIFT financial payment system is basically off the table at this point. Is that accurate? No option is off the table. In our view, we continue consulting closely with European counterparts on severe counter consequences for Russia if it further invades Ukraine. And do you have a commitment from the German government that they will uh, end the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? Uh, I think, as you know, uh, it is not functioning currently. You've seen the steps uh, that they have taken uh, recently. Uh, the pipe, uh, Germany's federal network agency has suspended cert the certification process as well of Nord Stream 2. Um, and our view continues to be that stopping the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a critical, pre credible piece 
uh, we hold over Russia at this point in time, especially since it is not functioning. And if sanctions are imposed right now, uh, which some are proposing, and Russia views these sanctions as a sunk cost, then this would be one less consideration in its calculus. So of course, we're consulting closely uh, with all of our partners and allies in this, but I would just note again uh, that the pipeline's not operational, that Germany's federal network agency has suspended the certification process. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, staying on Ukraine and Russia, what does the White House make of the ev evacuation of uh, Russian diplomatic staff from their embassy in Kiev? And do you think the threat of invasion is getting higher or lower? Well, I think, as I noted a few minutes ago, we believe we're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack on Ukraine. Uh, I would say that's more stark than we have been. Uh, in terms of the decision uh, to move um, uh, uh, to move it, uh, to evacuate their embassy or to move personnel out of their embassy. We have information that indicates uh, the Russian government was preparing to evacuate their family members from the Russian embassy in Ukraine in late December and early January. Uh, we certainly would refer you to uh, them for more specifics uh, about what their decision is, but we don't have an assess assessment on why in the meeting. Okay, and then uh, another one on uh, reports that the White House is in talks with the FAA and wireless providers on the 5G rollout and those potential disruption to airline travel. Is there anything more you can tell us on this agreement you're working on? And are you trying to prevent any flight cancellations which could start as soon as tomorrow? Uh, well, we are. Uh, those conversations are ongoing. I don't have an update at this moment, but they're ongoing right now, I would say. So uh, we have the safest uh, airspace in the world. Uh, we're committed to reaching a solution around 5G deployment that maintains the highest level of safety while maintaining disruptions, while minimizing disruptions to passenger travel, cargo operations, and our economic recovery. We certainly understand what's at stake for both industries. Uh, we are actively engaged, as you said, with the FAA, FCC, wireless carriers, airlines, and aviation equipment manufacturers to reach a solution. And we believe uh, that with continued uh, cooperation, we can chart a path forward. But certainly, uh, minimizing flight disruptions, uh, ensuring uh, safety in travel is a, is a top priority. And then one more, going Bloomberg, Go you, um, Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard will create the world's third biggest video game company. Does the White House have any competition concerns with this acquisition? Well, I would just note that um, today um, there is an announcement uh, by the FTC and the Justice Department that's probably happening uh, now. Uh, broadly speaking, this is not about this specific case, uh, which is, in our view, a critical step towards delivering on one of the key priorities of the, of the executive order the president signed, which is strengthening enforcement against illegal, illegal mergers. And it basically kicks off the technical process to review merger guidelines. Uh, as it relates to this specific case that you mentioned, I don't have a comment on a specific merger, but I just wanted to point you to their announcement, their press conference that may be going on right now. Go ahead. Oh, Joy, let me go ahead. Okay. Uh, let me go ahead so I just get to be yeah, yeah. Sure. There's, there's bipartisan supply chain resiliency legislation in the, um, in the House, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. Mm -hmm. um, is the White House engaged in getting lawmakers on board with this? Very closely engaged, and we've been advocates for uh, investing in uh, manufacturing here uh, in the United States, including investment in our chips manufacturing uh, capacity, but we're very closely engaged in these discussions. Where, what kind of discussions you're having and where there's... Where Just that we've been engaged from the beginning. Uh, the president has long been an advocate for uh, increasing investment in our manufacturing capacity at home, and uh, we are uh, looking forward to it moving forward. Okay, 
another one. Does the president think that members of Congress should be prohibited from trading stocks? The president is prohibited from doing this. So where does he stand on this? And should their spouses be too? Uh, the president uh, didn't trade individual stocks when he was a senator. Um, that is how he approached things. He also believes that uh, everyone should be held to the highest standard, but he'll let uh, members of the leadership in Congress and members of Congress determine what the rules should be. Go ahead, Michael. Thanks, Ben. Uh, a couple questions on what happened in Texas over the Sure. Um, how is it that an individual who was known to MI5 in Britain, uh, who was on a watch list as of 2020, ended up in a synagogue in Texas? How, how did that happen? Oh, well, our understanding, and obviously we're still looking into this, is that um, he was checked against U.S. government databases multiple times prior to entering the country, and the U.S. government did not have any derogatory information about the individual in our systems at the time of entry. We're certainly looking back, as I referenced, at what occurred to learn every possible lesson we can to prevent attacks like this in the future. Uh, beyond that, I'd certainly refer you to the Department of Homeland Security. Obviously, the president referred to the incident as, a, as an act of terror. What is the significance of referring to the individual as a terrorist or referring to the incident as a terrorist incident? I think, and I talked to the president about this um, that day as well, I think there's no question that uh, when somebody uh, goes into a, a house of worship um, and threatens uh, and holds hostage individuals who are there, uh, that that is an act of terror. That is terrorism. That is why he called it that because we don't need to be, uh, because it's very clear it's what it is. Go ahead. Hi, thanks, Jen. Uh, getting back to voting rights for a minute, yeah. you mentioned that the White House administration is going to continue to push back against state legislatures. The president mentioned this as well last week. But just to drill down on that a little more, can we expect to see more litigation from the Department of Justice around this? And if you look at cases that have already been filed under Section 2, we know historically that takes a very long time, years to resolve. Uh, are you confident that there is any action you can take that would result in any outcome before the midterms? Well, I, I really refer you to the Department of Justice. As you know, they have doubled their funding for voting rights protections. But in terms of individual cases or legal intentions or actions, I would point you to them. And then quickly, uh, to shift a little bit to health care and the Affordable Care Act, that was something that President Biden ran on, expanding the ACA. Yeah. He was able to do that, of course, through the rescue plan. Uh, but some of those other pieces were tied to Build Back Better, expanding mm -hmm. Medicaid, ag again, addressing subsidies. Is there a uh, plan B, a consideration of what steps could be taken if Build Back Better doesn't pass? Well, here's the good news. Um, there's a lot of interest, excitement, and engagement with a broad range of members of Congress about the shared desire to get something done and to lower costs for health care, for elder care, for child care. Uh, and those are, there are a range of conversations that are ongoing, lots of ideas uh, that we're discussing and we're engaged with. Um, that is the status. Uh, the president proposed this as part of his package because he, as you said, he has advocated for, he ran on, he has fought for an expansion of uh, access to health care, uh, lower costs for health care. He also feels very strongly about lowering the cost of prescription drugs, something he thinks is frankly shouldn't be controversial in this country. If you're not for lowering 
lowering the cost of prescription drugs, what are you for, Republicans in Congress, is his basic fundamental question. So uh, this is something we will continue to discuss. We're continuing to fight for and work for. Uh, but you know, I know there have been a range of reports out there, uh, and I would just make very clear there is no specific proposal we are putting forward. We are just engaged in a range of conversations with members of Congress about what to do next. Go ahead. Thanks, Jen. Uh, can you provide an update on the COVID testing website? Sure. Is it ready to go? Has the hotline number been created? You know, resiliency against crashes, that type of thing? Sure. So uh, covidtest.gov is in the beta phase uh, right now, which is a standard part of the process typically as it's being kind of tested uh, in, in the early stages of being rolled out. Um, we didn't start from scratch here, of course. The, the Postal Service already runs a website that sells goods to the public, as you know. Uh, every website launch, in our view, comes with risk. We can't guarantee there won't be a bug or two, uh, but the best tech teams across the administration and the Postal Service are working hard to make this a success. So it will officially launch tomorrow morning. It's in the beta testing phase right now. Um, and I would also note that the U.S. Digital Service, um, which was an organization founded after healthcare.gov, uh, after the healthcare.gov rescue, uh, has been supporting the Postal Service to ensure that they have what they need to be successful in this critical moment. So looking forward to an official launch tomorrow morning, uh, and right now it's in the beta phase. Uh, on Ukraine and Russia, I know you said that the, the United States is ready for uh, Russia to engage at any time. I wanted to ask you, though, about the media narrative uh, of the falsifying or alleging that Russia is going to say that Ukraine is going to attack Russia. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any indications of that? Has that, has that narrative been put into work yet? We talked about this a fair amount on Friday because we've seen efforts to push that narrative uh, in the media and in the public. Um, and I think one of the um, key roles we can play here is making very clear that uh, there is a long history of propaganda from Russian leadership, uh, that they use it as a tool uh, to spread misinformation uh, as, a, as, a, as a means of gaining ground. And we should be very clear about what's accurate and inaccurate, and that's an inaccurate narrative. Go ahead. Thank you, Jen. Uh, thank you. Since there are so few reporters in here today, I'd like to ask uh, briefly about three transparency issues. Um, the first one I'm kind of amazed uh, hasn't been brought up more in this room. Uh, that is that Vanity Fair reported recently that on October 22nd, a group of health experts from Harvard, the Rockefeller, Rockefeller Foundation, and other groups proposed on a Zoom meeting with administration officials a plan to mass distribute coronavirus tests to homes before Christmas to prevent a winter surge of COVID-19 cases, but that they were told three days after that Zoom meeting that uh, that idea was dead. Um, so I emailed you about this yesterday and again this morning uh, so that you'd be able to track down a firm answer on two details here. Uh, the first detail is uh, which administration officials attended that October 22nd meeting. For example, did Drs. Fauci and Walensky uh, participate? And was President Biden personally briefed at the time on that recommendation before it was passed over? Well, maybe people haven't asked about it because we've done a lot of what was discussed in that meeting uh, that happened a couple of months ago, including massively expanding our testing program and capacity. And the issue at the time, which was a very small part of the conversation, was that the market had not expanded enough uh, to, uh, to, at that moment in time, be able to uh, launch the website we're launching tomorrow. 
And the president, uh, you know, used the Defense Production Act, invested $3 billion to expand it, quadrupled the size of our testing capacity, and now we've ordered 1 billion doses. So we see that as our COVID team, the members who participated, saw that as a very constructive meeting, a good meeting, a lot of which we've worked to implement. Idea though to mass distribute tests to homes before Christmas and New Year's, that idea was not adopted. Um, how can uh, President Biden shut down the virus if he's you know not being briefed on these ideas? Uh, that, I mean that's my question. So I'm wondering uh, who were the advisors and was President Biden briefed on this idea at the time? Well, I, I think I just answered your question, uh, which you may not have been listening. Maybe you were waiting to read your next question, which is fine. But I just answered your question. Let me finish. Let me finish, Stephen. Stephen, I'm finishing. Uh, what I said to you just a minute ago is that we did not have the capacity at the moment. Uh, we had a very constructive meeting with this group. Uh, we agreed in the need to expand our testing capacity. That's why we quadrupled the size of our testing capacity and why the president had already used the Defense Production Act to invest $3 billion. But the market did not have the capacity at that moment to do what we're doing tomorrow. Yes, I hear what you're saying, but that's not the question I asked. The question I asked was which Do you have which, another which, question? I think I've answered your question. President Biden briefed at the time? Again, I've answered your question. If you have another one, I'm happy to answer it. Otherwise, I'm going to move okay, on to well, the next I'm person. I didn't get the answers there, but I'll I'll move on to another one. Great. Um, the second question is uh, that in light of President Biden's first year coming to a close, uh, the data indicates that he spent a quarter of his days at least partially in Delaware. Um, in light of that, uh, will the White House be reconsidering the, uh, the decision not to release visitor log information from his Delaware residences? Well, the president goes to Delaware because it's his home. It's also where uh, his son and his uh, former wife are buried. Uh, and it's a place that is obviously close to his heart. A lot of presidents go visit their home uh, when they are president. We also have gone a step further than the prior administration and many administrations in releasing visitor logs of people who visit the White House, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, go ahead in the back. I think we're done, and we're going to move on. Uh, go ahead in the back. Uh, the Reuters reported this morning the Biden administration is reviewing e-commerce giant Alibaba cloud business for uh, um, U.S. national security reasons. Can you confirm? I'd really have to check with our national security team on that. I'm happy to do that, and we'll get back to you after the briefing. Uh, go ahead in the back. Hey, Jen. Um, I want to pivot back to voting rights, sure. particularly um, uh, the president's speech last week. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it came together. But also, I wonder if you'll respond to some of the criticism about it, that it was too aggressive or divisive, and, and that you know some of the rhetoric that he used wasn't you know, conducive to getting folks you know, who are opposed on board. Well, uh, sorry, which piece did you want me to start with? Uh, whichever one is best for you. Uh, OK. Well, I, I would say first that um, you know the president delivered a powerful speech about uh, the protection of people's fundamental rights in this, uh, in this country, which is their right to vote, their right to, uh, to vote for anyone they choose, whether it is him or someone else. It was not a partisan speech. It was intended to lay out for the public exactly what's at stake and lay out for elected officials what's at stake. Um, and he stands by everything he said in that speech. Can you talk a little bit about how it came together, though? Like, who did he 
who did he or the White House consult with? Like, how did he, how did he land at this point? I'm just trying to get to the genesis of it. Well, he consulted. There have been discussions for months on voting rights um, on the Hill uh, with Democrats, certainly an open door to Republicans to have a discussion among members and among staff about a path forward, something that 16 Republicans uh, who are serving today have supported in the past. And also he consulted a lot with civil rights leaders. We consulted with civil rights leaders, with voting rights activists, and others who have been working around the clock to advocate for voting rights. Okay, go ahead, Jeff. I would ask you a couple questions. First, what is the administration or the White House doing today on the 5G controversy? Uh, if sure. anything, in the remaining hours uh, before the midnight deadline. So there are ongoing discussions right now with members of our economic team uh, who are closely engaged um, with um, uh, with at the FAA, FCC, wireless carriers, airlines, and aviation equipment man manufacturers to reach a solution. As you noted, uh, tomorrow is the deadline. Our objective is, of course, to reach a solution uh, around 5G deployment that maintains the highest level of safety while minimizing disruptions to passenger travel. That's what we're working towards. But uh, everyone from Secretary Pete Buttigieg uh, to members of our economic team are closely engaged in these discussions. President's press conference tomorrow on the eve of his one-year anniversary. He has uh, long said that he uh, would uh, talk straight from the shoulder, I think is his words, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to be and to give an honest assessment of things. What is your honest assessment of the last year of the Biden administration? Um, and how can the voting rights of failure um, not be seen as some type of a metaphor for these challenges? Well, I would say in terms of voting rights, um, his view is that um, it's never a good idea not to shoot for the moon with what your proposals are and what you're fighting for. Uh, and the alternative is to fight for nothing and to fight for nothing hard. And that uh, sometimes, oftentimes, as you know, you've covered a couple of administrations, you don't get everything done in the first year. But what we feel good about, and this is why I brought some of these charts to show the contrast, is that coming into an incredibly difficult circumstance, fighting a pandemic, an economic uh, a massive economic downturn as a result, uh, an administration that uh, was prior to us that did not effectively deal with a lot of these crises, that there's been a lot of progress made. Uh, we need to build on that. The work is not done. The job is not done. Uh, and we are certainly not conveying it as. Uh, so our objective, and I think what you'll hear the president uh, talk about tomorrow, is how to build on the foundation we laid in the first year. Go ahead. In two years to come up with a plan for this to, to deal with this implementation, should they have acted sooner to minimize disruption? Did the FAA drop the ball here? You know, I think, uh, Mary, there'll be lots of time to look back and see how we got here. And I know many of you will do that. And, and of course, that, that is understandable. But right now, over the next 24 or less than 24 hours, what we're focused on is uh, trying to come to a solution that will uh, minimize uh, travel, uh, travel um, uh, you know, uh, disruptions uh, to passenger travel, cargo operations, and our economic recovery. And that is why it's so important to hopefully come to an agreement and ensure uh, more planes are flying out there. Oh, on voting rights, you know, unless something has dramatically changed, which it doesn't seem likely this is going to fail, you have made clear that the president you know, is going to keep up this fight, fight with every last breath he has. Does that mean that this is the top priority going forward legislatively? I, I ask because obviously BBB is still stalled as well. Where is the president going to be putting his energy? 
we can, we can and will advocate for both. Um, and um, that is reflective of what's happening now, too. Of course, voting rights is uh, right now being debated. It's going to be on the floor. Uh, the president was out last week, as you know, giving a powerful speech about why this is so important to move forward. At the same time, we were having a range of conversations on Build Back Better because we also want to get that done. So uh, we're going to keep fighting for both. Go ahead. Thanks, Jen. Um you know, the airlines are using some pretty dire language to describe what's going to happen tomorrow if the president doesn't step in and take action. They're saying that the nation's commerce will grind to a halt, that the vast majority of the traveling and shipping public will essentially be grounded. Does the president share the view uh, that the airlines have about how bad this is going to be if the White House doesn't step in? Well, I think what we're trying to do now is come to a solution to avoid exactly that. And it is true that if there are uh, hundreds or thousands of flights that are grounded, that means not just disruptions to passenger travel, that also means cargo operations. That means that goods aren't moving around uh, as, uh, as quickly and effectively uh, as they need to in order to not have supply chain disruptions. Uh, so this is something that we are very focused on, we've been closely engaged on, and we want to avoid that and prevent it. Can you explain why the FAA and the FCC seem to have different views here? The, uh, the FAA seems to share some of the concerns that the airlines have about the possible implications of um, implementing 5G, whereas the FCC has said, based on the data it's seen, it's not a problem. Well, I think part of this is, is having a negotiation and trying to find a solution. Uh, I'm not going to speak for the FCC, which is, of course, independent. Uh, our objective is to prevent this from becoming uh, the economic disruption that you referenced in your question. Uh, go ahead, Joey. Yeah, thanks, Jen. Uh, you mentioned the beta testing is already yeah. underway in regards to the COVID-19 testing website. One of my colleagues uh, discovered that they're already actually, you're, you are already able to purchase them, or not purchase them, order them for free yeah. online. Uh, so, you know, for people who are purchasing them today, is, are these orders being registered? Are they going to be yeah, able to that, get there? That's, that's yeah, that's beta testing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. meaning we're going to launch it formally tomorrow morning, but uh, this is how we did vaccines.gov as well. So, it's kind of a part of the process. Do you have an official uh, rollout tomorrow morning? What time in the morning can we expect? I don't have the exact time for you at this moment, but um, again, it's going to be out tomorrow morning. Um, mid-morning tomorrow and uh, we're looking forward to getting free tests out to the public. And on the same topic, Maryland Governor uh, Larry Hogan yesterday on Face the Nation said the federal government has, quote, fallen short in a couple ways recently in regards to its COVID-19 response. He pointed to these 500 million uh, uh, rapid tests saying the federal government has purchased tests that his state had already contracted rather than purchasing new tests. He said, quote, we're sort of hijacking the test that we already had plans for, and we're now getting some of these those providers to tell us they no longer have the rapid test. So what is the White House's response uh, to that criticism that the federal government is purchasing uh, the same allotment of, of, of tests and hamstringing uh, some state efforts here? I'd have to check into that on the accuracy of that with our COVID team, um, and I'm happy to do that. All right, thanks so much, everyone.
Audio Jungle. Money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a reality check for Apple's mixed reality headset now facing a new delay. What this means for the iPhone maker's push into the metaverse. Plus, the largest crypto fund to date, crypto exchange FTX, is launching a $2 billion venture fund. Our conversation with the person in charge of putting all that cash to work this hour. And the internet's latest obsession, Wordle, how a game invented in 2018 is suddenly going viral. We'll get to all of that in a moment, but first let's get a look at the markets. Volatility was the buzzword of the day. Our Ed Ludlow here with the latest. Ed, I mean, Wordle is still the buzzword of any day <laughs> at the moment, but volatility, I mean, it's been a jittery week in financial markets, right? Volatility, chopping tra choppy trading, what, call it what you will. Investors taking on board rising yields, the outlook for rates, inflation, the Omicron variant. But we ended positively Friday, right? We saw this rebound in stocks late in Friday's session, particularly in tech stocks. You see that outperformance in the NASDAQ 100 closing up eight tenths of 1%, while the S&P 500 is basically flat. Outperformance, particularly in mega caps, the NYSE FANG Plus index up more than a percent. And Bitcoin really moving in the same way, seeing kind of a rebound as, as people kind of became more confident buying into equities on Friday. It's that time of the week, Emily, where I get to ask my favorite question. Of course, you know what it is. What is Bitcoin? Come with me into my Bloomberg terminal. Let's think about this for just a moment, right? Because we've been talking about Bitcoin. Is it an inflation hedge? Is it a risk asset like an equity? Is it a commodity? Well, what you see on the screen in the right-hand side is the correlation between Bitcoin and tech stocks, the NASDAQ 100 specifically. It's a reading of 0.4. One means a perfect correlation. They're moving in lockstep. Negative one, they're moving in opposite directions. So at 0.4, you know, we see in that chart throughout 2020, 2021, that correlation has been high, but it's been creeping up after dropping off at the beginning of this year. They're moving in lockstep. And there's a lot of people asking again, what is Bitcoin? Is it an inflation hedge? Because it seems to be behaving very much like a risk asset, like equity. It's not going to go away. The question will keep at it. Two big corporate stories you're going to talk about in a moment with Mark Scoopdog Gurman. But Apple closing up five tenths of a percent, half a percent. But it did drop on news, according to sources, that the ARVR headset delayed due to some specific issues. Big news for that company. And Meta, according to sources, being looked at, particularly Oculus, by the FTC and antitrust practices in that virtual reality business, Emily. All right, Ed, thanks much. Let's get to that Meta news. The FTC and multiple states are investigating Meta's virtual reality unit, Oculus, over potential anti-competitive practices are Mark Scoot Dog Gurman here with the details. Mark, look, what exactly is the FTC interested in? What did Meta potentially do wrong here? The FTC wants to know a few things. They want to know how Meta is able to sell their headset for $299 
which undercuts the price of many competitors from HCC and other providers. They want to know if their app store practices are stifling competition. They want to know how Meta through Oculus is hurting third-party virtual reality developers. So they've been talking to several developers over the past few months or so. This is both the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and states, including New York, Tennessee, and North Carolina. And I think this is going to be a long-running investigation. And yet it's, a, it's yet another time that government officials are looking into Meta and other technology companies, obviously, like Apple and Google and Amazon, are also under lots of scrutiny. Absolutely. Just another headache for Meta. I do want to move on to Apple and your story that it's ARVR headset, which we've been long anticipating in part because of your reporting, could be delayed. What did you know? This might actually be another, yet another headache for Meta because based on uh, what we've been hearing, the capabilities of this first mixed reality headset from uh, Apple are going to be pretty hot and hard for Facebook to compete with with its first mixed reality headset next year. But speaking of the news, we're hearing that there is probably going to be a few month delay at minimum for Apple's headset. That's because of development challenges stemming from the device overheating, from software and from camera technology. What Apple's trying to do is they're trying to cram in processors that you normally get in a MacBook Pro or a very high-end desktop computer into a headset that you wear on your face that doesn't need to be plugged in. And controlling the thermal system and overheating and the battery for that is a very you know tricky thing to do. And so that's what Apple has been grappling with. Uh, I still think they're going to introduce the headset either late in 2022 or sometime early in 2023 and then release it more widely in 2023. How important is this new headset going to be to Apple's product lineup? Yeah, this is going to be at the early in the early innings. It's not going to sell that much. Apple is projected selling one unit uh, per day per retail store. Uh, from what we're told from supply chain partners, there's forecasts of selling between seven and ten million units uh, for the for the first year on sale. Uh, and then from there, you know, they're only going to continue to build up momentum with follow up models augmented reality, glasses further down the road, right? So there is a long roadmap ahead for the AR and VR product line, and you're going to see them expand on it and build on it, just like they've built upon the iPad, uh, the iPod, well before that, the iPhone, the Apple Watch, and the AirPods more recently. All right, Mark Ehrman, thanks so much for that update. I want to talk a little bit more about Apple now with Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities. Dan, what's your take on Mark's report that this headset, which could potentially be really important, but not, you know, perhaps the biggest sales, at least not right away, could be delayed? Look, I mean, there's a lot of complexity in terms of building out what we'll define as Apple Glass. You know, we believe this is something that they want to introduce potentially in the summer and ultimately start to sell in the fall, call elite fall. You know, there are a lot of technology hurdles. They want to make sure they get this right. And we still think the timetable is to have this ready for holiday season. Right? And the street sort of uses this as just the first start of what could be a, a broader growth initiative here. And we think that this could add about $20 per share to the stock once they officially launch it. We've got earnings coming up amidst a broader tech sell-off, and Apple has not been immune. What are you expecting? I think for Apple to tell two cities because underlying demand is outstripping supply by about 12 to 14 million units. 
So I think what we're going to see is a, a strong earnings that probably beats the street by about 5% coming out of the gate. They'll be cautious in terms of the supply chain, but ultimately I think they up guidance, you know, going into the next year, despite some of those supply chain issues. I think services right now could be on a run rate about 80 billion for the year. And then you look what's happened on iPhone. You know, I think that's something that continues to track ahead of the street. That's why, despite all the Fed news, despite all the, the macro worries, I think when fundamentals come for Apple, that's a positive catalyst in our opinion. I think sends the stock back above the three trillion mark cap. What's your outlook for big tech equities over the course of the year, given news or no news from the Fed? Look, I think right now you're in a vacuum of news where, where until fundamentals come in terms of earnings, Street's going to have that risk off. I continue to view it as cloud and chips are going to lead us higher. I think fundamentally the digital transformation that we're seeing is actually accelerating into the next year, not decelerating, because we think about a trillion is going to be spent in the cloud in the next four years. That's what we're focused on. So some of the froth will get taken out of the market. It's clearly a bit of a white knuckle period for tech. But I think we look back on this time a year from now, and this was an opportunity where it's our view that we're still in the middle innings of this tech bull rally. Meantime, I want to turn to Tesla, where we're still seeing demand outstrip supply. At what point does supply meet demand and how? Well, Austin's so important. We think by next week, uh, Tesla's basically going to be ready to start producing Model Y cars in, in Austin, which is extremely important to the broader story because you combine what's happened in Austin plus Berlin, we think, launches uh, sometime in February and China. There'll be about 2 million unit capacity by the end of the year. So they'll about double capacity. And right now, Tesla doesn't have a demand issue. It's a supply issue. I think we're going to see with Tesla you know, they're going to start really seeing acceleration out of China and Europe. And there was some noise with the Cybertruck moving to 2023. That's a positive thing, because in my view, it's all right now about Model Y and Model 3. Cybertruck is a 2023 story, which is very in line with where GM, uh, Ford and others are. Do want to ask a quick question about Meta because it does seem heading into the year. Of course, we just got they just got a little bit of bad news with the FTC and that Oculus investigation. But I wonder if you think the name change and the at least outward pivot seems to have worked in terms of tamping down the bad press. I mean, it was a it's going to go in the genius PR Hall of Fame in terms of that name change. Now, of course, strategically, they're focused on the metaverse, but everyone knows, I mean, their core monetization is, is social media monetization on the advertising front. But it, it is something where they were going through a lot of black eye situations that taken some of the heat off them. But now it's about them executing. And that's what the streets can be focused on. But the regulatory environment for big tech they're going to be spending a lot of time either in person or virtually in the uh, 202 area. Could. All right. And yet that litigation piling up. Dan Ives of Wedbush, always good to have you on the show. Thank you for stopping by. Well, Netflix says it plans to spend more on programming at a price. The streaming service announcing it's raised the price of its monthly subscription packages in the U.S. The changes posted on the Netflix website stating the basic plan, which allows just one user at a time, will go up. 
by a dollar, while the premium service will get a $2 boost. Coming up, the largest employer so far to stop President Biden's vaccination or test mandate. Could General Electric's decision sway other employers? That is next. This is Bloomberg. I think that uh, 2022 may be the year that the pandemic enters an endemic phase, but it really depends on what happens and the decisions that are made across the world. And so that are encouraging in some ways, but I think that we have to be, stay very vigilant. Moderna co-founder Nubar Afayan sharing his view that the COVID-19 pandemic could ultimately become endemic, similar to what we see with the flu. He added that Moderna's booster shot, specifically tweaked to tackle Omicron, could be ready to start trials within weeks. This as the Supreme Court blocked the Biden administration's vaccine or test mandate for large employers. General Electric announced Friday it is suspending implementation of that mandate, the largest employer yet to do so. Bloomberg Government's Alex Ruoff with us now. So, Alex, the big question is, how many other employers are going to follow suit? Yeah, that is a big question. Um, you know, there, there's a big disparity across the country on this now. Now that the federal mandate, you know, has been blocked by the courts, you know, it's kind of up to where these companies are located. Uh, you know, about 13 states prohibit vaccine mandates of kind of any kind, uh, while about 20 some have some type of mandate of their own for maybe state employees or healthcare workers. So, like a lot of things, when the federal solution, you know, falls isn't uh, is blocked, it kind of ends up a big hodgepodge across the country. So it's really going to depend on where you live. Does the administration have a next move legally with these mandates? Uh, well, that's pretty complicated. You know the. Um, OSHA, which started the larger public rule, you know, has other tools in its tool belt. But, you know, the Biden administration, you know, at the beginning of the uh, of, of Biden's term, he did not, you know, he said he didn't want to do mandates. He, he thought, you know, as the vaccines rolled out, there was a lot of, you know, if you remember, there was a period of time where people were getting baseball tickets and, you know, money and bonuses and free beer for vaccines. And that really topped out its effectiveness, you know, and then they kind of had to switch to mandates to coercion at this point. But, yeah, the, tool, the amount of tools in the federal toolbox is very limited in that regard, you know, in terms of making mandates. Um, some of these are still around. The health care, the, the one for doctors, nurses, health care workers, was upheld by the court. And there's others in place. But, yeah, I think the, they're, they're really limited in what they can do next to, you know, really get people to, to get vaccinated. Exactly. What else can they do to get people vaccinated or beat back the virus. I mean, 500 million or even a billion rapid tests is nice, but it's only a snapshot of a moment in time and, you know, more than 300 million Americans. Yeah, that is the big, I mean, you know, we've, it looks like the amount of, you know, the percentage of the U.S. that's been vaccinated is kind of holding steady. You know, it's a little bit over 60%. They're really been trying to crack that kind of, um, you know, three quarters of the of the country or two thirds of the country to get vaccinated. It, it's really put, you know, they've slowed a lot in terms of the percentage. 
And there are a lot of questions about how you, you know, fulfill this. I, I, there's a lot of expectation that as this, be, you know, as this becomes endemic, as a year or so passes by, you know, we're, we're probably not, you know, there's expectation that they're not going to see a big change here. Where we are, maybe, you know, where we are as a country for at least the, at least the next year or so. Wow. All right. Bloomberg government's Alex Ruoff. We shall see what the year holds. Coming up, the future of SPACs. After 2021 being a record year for SPAC deals, where are we headed in 2022? We'll hear from a new SPAC CFO directly next. This is Bloomberg. Apologies for getting this song stuck in your head, but Baby Shark just hit a major milestone on YouTube. It has now been viewed more than 10 billion times. It already was the most viewed video on YouTube of all time. That record set back in November of 2020, but it is now the only video ever to reach 10 billion views. And we're all going to be singing it now all night long. Well, let's talk SPACs and what the market looks like for this year. Joining us to talk about that and more, Claudia Gast, CFO of the Global Technology Acquisition Corp, a newly formed SPAC that intends to focus on tech companies and financial tech. So, Claudia, obviously there was a big SPAC frenzy, then they pulled back a bit. Some have been doing much better than others. Why take the SPAC route? Thanks, Emily, for having me. It's great to be here. Like you mentioned, 2021 was an exciting year. 613 SPACs uh, went to market, and we have already four that priced last week, and we have uh, 270 in the pipeline. So it's shaping up to be an exciting year. We've been uh, long-term investors, operators, and entrepreneurs, and we've backed more than a thousand entrepreneurs and 600 companies. And so this was a natural step to us to go from the BC and the hedge fund background to go into the SPAC market, into an opportunity to bring up good private companies into the public market and support them through, through the journey with, with our team. What do you plan to buy? That's a, that's a great question. We've been having uh, late last year, uh, great uh, conversations and uh, our main focus is marketplaces, fintech, and, and SaaS. This is truly where, where our expertise lays. And uh, those are the kind of companies uh, that we're talking to right now. And, you know, as uh, you mentioned, some of the market, uh, you, we had very high valuations uh, about a year ago last year. The market kind of softened up in uh, quarter two and quarter three. And December alone uh, last year, we saw 25 uh, mergers uh, completed. So, you know, we're coming from a strong end of the year and very excited about the beginning of this year. What we're seeing is that with the rising interest, the valuations being adjusted as a result of that, the SPAC vehicle, it becoming a, a very good uh, you know, tool for entrepreneurs to, to look for some certainty as they come to the public market. The SEC has been pretty active looking into SPACs and reverse mergers, and we're about to hit rate liftoff cycle. Do you wish you'd done this sooner? 
No, look, we actually did it uh, at, at the right time. We navigated through the process, uh, worked collectively through, through the SEC as the, as the different steps uh, came in. And it is true that there's uh, 580 uh, SPACs uh, looking for opportunities, but all 2022, the, the great competitor was, was cash and cash availability and for large public corporations, uh, M&A, it's been competitive against uh, private equities as well, and now against SPACs. So really, cash is through the, you know, the truly competitor. And so it doesn't really make a difference uh, for us in, in terms of finding a, a good company to bring to market. Investors have embraced Tesla as the biggest car maker by market value. Ford also soaring. And then you've got some of these other new entrants that did go public via SPAC, Lordstown. Nicola, that you know have little in terms of revenue. Do you think or worry that we could be in the process of a bubble bursting? Well, I mean, I think if you look at other companies like um, you know the Lucid that was brought in by you know by Churchill, it is true that there is some companies uh, like like Lordstown um, that maybe will be uh, you know struggling and bringing sort of the the average down, but the. It is a matter of, you know, do we have the right asset? If I think about in general for SPACs, what's the key, you know, for a SPAC to be successful is that number one, find the right target, have the right team and have the right operating team behind it to be able to, uh, you know, to continue to the journey of, of a public company. So it really depends of the asset you, you, you truly bring to market. So what's your general outlook for the SPAC market? Does this continue to be a more niche route of going public, does it become more popular or not? I, I we, we see the, the SPAC, you know, call it, in, you know, investment vehicle as a good alternative for, you know, to go public together with direct listing and, uh, and, and IPO. And uh, what we expect to see is, is a couple of things. I think uh, in 2022 and 2023, towards the end of 2022, in early 2023, we might see some of the SPACs coming to term. In average, over the past, let's say, call it five years, there's been about 5% of uh, SPACs that had to wind down. I think in the coming years or two, we're going to see the same, just with a larger, with a larger volume. Um, at the same time, there's, there is an opportunity for, you know, for SPACs to, to find the right, the right match. And uh, so we do believe it's going to continue to be uh, a prominent vehicle, uh, but we expect to see less of new time issuers and more of sort of repeated issuers. So we think the market sort of is going to bifurcate in that sense. Any sectors you're staying away from deliberately? Well, specifically, uh, you know, we, we've stayed uh, away in the past from healthcare because that's an area that hasn't been our space. Truly, our focus is with marketplaces, uh, fintech and SaaS. And um, some of us see a marketplace, you know, everywhere. So it really depends on how you how you look at it. But uh, but generally, those, those are the key areas where we want to focus. All right. Claudia Gast, CFO of the Global Technology Acquisition Corp. We'll be watching to see the next move you make. Thank you. Coming up, we'll be joined by FTX's Amy Wu, who is leading the exchange's new $2 billion fund to invest in crypto startups and more. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg.
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Crypto exchange FTX is launching a $2 billion venture fund, one of the largest to date, to tap into the crypto market startups and beyond. I want to bring in Amy Wu to talk more about this. She joined FTX from Lightspeed Ventures, where she led investments in gaming, crypto, and other startups and was brought in to lead FTX's new funds. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. $2 billion is a big number. Where do you plan to spend it? Well, we are super excited to be, you know, one of the new strategic funds to deploy capital into the broader crypto and Web3 ecosystem. You know, we believe that we're still pretty early in the market and you can, you know, define by the number of users. We're still at, I would say, less than half a half a billion users uh, trading crypto globally and fewer than actually 20 million people trading in DeFi. So we're still very early, uh, mil hundreds of millions of users to be onboarded and we wanna help the ecosystem get there. Now, all of this money, as I understand it, came from Sam Bankman fried the founder and CEO, and FTX. Normally, when you raise a fund, it's from a lot of other investors who you then have to answer to. How does the structure of this make things different for you, having come from a traditional venture fund, given that you don't have to answer to all of these LPs? Well, the exciting thing is that, you know, we have the size of fund to be able to write a very large range of checks. So anything from you know $100,000 to $500 million checks, we are able to write and also in multi-stage companies. And also without outside partners and LPs, we're just able to move really fast and uh, and you know really focus on providing value that is sort of our expertise and resources across FDX's global ecosystem of partners. And, uh, and really focus on the, the founding team. Meantime, there's so much talk and concern, especially from newer investors, about the direction of the crypto market, concerns about a crypto winter, a death cross coming. We just had John Wu, the head of Ava Labs, who thinks a golden cross is ahead instead. Where do you think the market is going to move ahead? And how does that influence where and how you place your bets? Well, I think there's, you know, trading crypto and then there's making investments in the ecosystem. It is, I don't think anybody can really predict where the market is going on a short-term basis and perhaps even medium-term basis. But, you know, I think, you know, we certainly are super bullish about the long-term trajectory of blockchain technology adoption. And so, you know, with this fund, we have a long-term, and by that I mean, you know, years measured in years and decades, view into the technology being adopted cross categories. So, you know, Web3 consumer, gaming, uh, infrastructure, software, uh, you know, software, healthcare, and other categories. Meantime, crypto funds seem to be everywhere. There's Paradigm, there's Coinbase launching their own fund. Katie Hahn from Andreessen Horowitz launching her own fund. Andreessen Horowitz, of course, has its own uh, crypto fund. Are all of these funds going to be chasing the same names? Or, and if so, how do you convince you know, various startups and founders that your money is, is the money they should take? Yeah, so I think you're seeing a lot of different types of investors coming into the, the crypto market because you know, it is a fairly nascent space and it reflects the size of opportunity and also the number of developers and founding teams uh, in, in this category. So there's a lot of 
there's a lot of great teams to back. And in terms of why they should go with FTX Ventures, I would say, you know, we're launching with eight people on the team and it's a team of both investors and also engineers. And, you know, everybody has had a significant amount of time and expertise in the space. And so we, our objectives with the fund is we want to be closer. We want to be really hands-on with teams and make fewer investments, but go a lot deeper in our value-add process. You're also across the gaming vertical. And I'm curious, how do you find the next Axie Infinity that's going to take this world by storm? Yeah, gaming is a really exciting category for us, for both the venture side and also FTX more broadly. It is the largest you know, entertainment category in the world. Uh, it's about $200 billion per year industry and in content alone. And also, you know, gamers uh, historically have valued in-game digital assets. You could say that they really pioneered the usage and value of that. And it's pretty natural extension to think that they will want to own the assets as well. You know, there's some controversy around, I think a lot of gamers get um, wrapping their minds around the concept of NFTs, but you know, we're super bullish around it. And in terms of how to find these gaming studios, what we're looking for are teams that are both very experienced in making games and have had experience doing so, and also have an idea of innovative ways to adopt NFT and blockchain tech. So what's next? Obviously, there's a lot of money chasing a lot of potential deals, but there's a lot of regu regulatory uncertainty. Is there anything you're going to stay away from? What sort of crypto projects out there don't have the right stuff? It's a nuanced and um, you know question, Emily. I would say that this year, uh, you know, we're always very closely looking at and understanding the regulatory environment. And that is, you know, one, you know, that's a set of rules in the U.S. And, and that is still emerging and also different across jurisdictions. So I would say in the context of what's developing, we're going to be looking at teams that um, that also respects that um, that is important to be compliant to regulatory. Um, and frameworks. And uh, it's also an area that we can also add value since on the exchange side, we have so much expertise in, uh, into that. All right. Amy Wu, head of ventures and commercial at FTX. Thank you for joining us. We'll be watching your next move. Coming up, the earth keeps setting records as global temperatures continue to rise. But my next guest is trying to do his part to stop it, or as he calls it, turn buildings into Teslas one building at a time. That is next, this is Bloomberg. Well, these last eight years have been the hottest on record. 2021 ranked as the sixth hottest year, according to analysis by NASA and the National Ocean Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. As the globe continues to warm, more companies are doing their part or trying to to stop it. My next guest has been working for a decade now to try green America's cities by modernizing heating and cooling systems to make buildings more energy efficient. Joining me now, Danelle Baird. He is the CEO of Block Power. And Danelle, the way you put it is you're trying to turn buildings into Teslas. How exactly does the technology work? Absolutely. So buildings right now burn fossil fuels for, for heating, for cooling, for hot water. 
Just like Tesla has taken the fossil fuel engine out of vehicles and replaced it with an all-electric engine, we can now take that fossil fuel heating, cooling, and hot water equipment out of buildings and replace it with 100% electric, clean, green, smart uh, hardware and equipment that uses electricity to provide heating, cooling, and hot water. So we can totally electrify and decarbonize buildings. Talk to us about the business model. You just raised $30 million in new funding. You know, how do you plan to spend that money and make this a sustainable proposition for homeowners? Well, we're going to go building to building across America. There's 125 million buildings or, or around that across the country, and we need to decarbonize all of those buildings because buildings represent about 30% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and so we know we have to decarbonize buildings and move them from fossil fuels to electricity in order to reach our climate goals. And so block power, we use machine learning, statistical modeling, uh, the latest and greatest tech from Silicon Valley. We borrow money from Wall Street. We purchase the clean energy equipment. We loan it or, or lease the equipment to building owners uh, so that they can afford it. We lease it to them over time. We save each and every building owner money and they repay us out of the savings that are generated because our systems uh, make buildings more efficient and more profitable. They generate savings so that building owners can repay us for upgrading uh, to clean energy systems. You're based in Brooklyn and I have to ask about that devastating fire that killed 17 people. The thought was that a space heater was left on for days, perhaps because there wasn't enough heat to heat the entire building. Could your work help eliminate the need for this supplemental heat that we know can cause fires? That, that, that building fire was a terrible, terrible tragedy. And our heart goes out to, to everyone who, who was impacted. Um, the, the building actually had a bunch of complaints. A lot of tenants and residents called the government to complain about a lack of heat. And that's why there was that need for supplemental heat. But unfortunately, in buildings across the Bronx and buildings across America, um, the energy systems are inefficient. They're old, they're outdated, they're unhealthy. And in lots of, in, in too many buildings, energy systems are, are death traps. Um, they're unhealthy, they're dangerous. And you will see um, the kind of dangerous and unhealthy impacts as we see here. I grew up in a building like this uh, in a low-income community back in Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy when it was a really low-income community in the 80s. We didn't have a functioning heating system at all. And we would heat our apartment by turning on the oven and open up the oven door and, and letting the heat from the oven heat up our apartment. And then we'd open up the windows to release carbon monoxide and all the, the toxins that were coming out of the oven. And so in, in far too many buildings across America, um, there's millions and millions of Americans who, who have old, antiquated, inefficient systems, and those systems are dangerous. We think that by upgrading these buildings to modern technology, uh, it's 2022. We shouldn't be burning oil and gas in basements and using space heaters uh, to heat buildings. We can use modern, cutting-edge, cloud-connected, uh, high-efficiency electric devices to green all of America's buildings. You also teamed up with the city of New York to create more than 1,000 jobs in green energy, hiring at-risk workers. What does that mean? And talk to us about how this initiative will work. 
Yeah, so as part of the, the COVID recovery and COVID response, the White House uh, allowed cities to use COVID response dollars to actually train and hire uh, folks from high crime communities to, to do green construction work, to be trained, to be employed, to go building to building, to install internet antenna, to help close the digital divide so that children could learn remotely, to install solar panels as we're doing on a project in Staten Island today, um, to decarbonize the building's heating and cooling systems as we've been talking about. And so we've created this, this civilian climate core uh, by hiring 500 adults from the highest crime communities in New York City. So, you know, uh, in the Bronx and, and Harlem and, and Jamaica, Queens and Brownsville, Brooklyn. We hire these folks, we train them to, to go building to building and do green construction upgrades that hopefully will help to prevent uh, fires and other kinds of dangerous outcomes like the building in the Bronx. Okay. Danelle Baird, CEO of Block Power, fascinating work you're doing. We'll continue to track your progress. Coming up, watch out, Adele. Encanto is here for the number one spot. Disney's newest film has overthrown the pop star for number one album on the Billboard 200. We've got all the deets. And Wordle, it is going viral. We'll decrypt how it came to be the phenomenon it is today and what people are saying about it on the internets. This is Bloomberg. Many years ago, this candle blessed our family with a miracle. There's no denying Disney's Encanto is a hit, but not only in the box office, it's having a second life on music and video streaming services. The soundtrack to the film becoming the number one album in the U.S. this week on the Billboard 100, 200, excuse me, bumping Adele's 30 from the top spot. Our Chris Palmieri joins us now with more. So Disney has a hit on its hands, huh, Chris? Yeah, and it's hard to say whether this is just one of those pandemic things or whether it's really a glimpse of the future of the entertainment business because this came out in Thanksgiving. It did okay. Obviously, parents reluctant to you know take their kids to the theaters. Gets released a month later on Disney Plus, and you know coinciding with the Omicron surge, and starts to really take off. People are posting videos on TikTok. The song we don't talk about Bruno's a big hit goes to number one as you mentioned and it and it really just we're you know kids are watching it again and again at at home and it just becomes a, a one of those phenomena so talk to us about the potential life this could have you know obviously whenever Disney has a hit like this there's obviously ongoing uh, you know franchising merchandising you know, theme park opportunities does Encanto get the, to that level uh, certainly, you know they already had a, you know characters at the theme park, and they'll probably build on that. The uh, consumer product side of this, we looked into that a little bit. It's doing okay. It's not really doesn't have a breakthrough toy like that Frozen dress from a few years ago. Uh, but you know this really is uh, also about the streaming business, and you know Disney. All of these folks need to to put up fresh uh, movies and TV shows on their uh, streaming platforms. And this keeps people engaged with Disney Plus, which is so critical 
the company's future. And then you wonder in the future if, you know, there used to be so much uh, focus on releasing a movie in that first big weekend in theaters, if maybe there won't be more attention paid to the online release of a movie. Now... Rich Greenfield of Lightshed has been pretty bearish on Disney Plus, super bullish on Netflix, doesn't think Disney has the content uh, to keep new subscribers coming to Disney Plus. What else does Disney have on tap? Well, they probably promised this huge increase uh, in spending next year, $30 billion and um, this year, I'm sorry. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of money, a lot of shows. Uh, you know, we're going to see big movies this year, Avatar 2, for example, uh, new next Black Panther. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot coming out, assuming it doesn't all get interrupted, uh, you know, by COVID and, and having to, you know, reschedule these shoots. All right. Well, we'll be watching to see uh, more of those hits keep coming. Bloomberg's Chris Palmieri. Thanks for that update. Well... It's a simple word game that has the entire internet going crazy. Wordle. It has been trending the whole week as people try to guess the game's five-letter word in six tries every day. Only one word puzzle a day, and it's the same word for everyone. As you can see here, don't worry, no spoilers, this isn't today's word. But after each guess, the tiles change colors to show which letters are not in the word in gray, which letters are in the word but in the wrong position in yellow and which ones are correctly in the word and in the right position in green. This is our going viral of the week. Gotta say, our Ed Ludlow here to tell us more. And Ed, we wordle dueled today. I think we it did. was your first time. It first was my time, first right? time. Yeah, it was my first time and it was frustrating because I wasn't as good, as it, good at it as I thought I'd be. And you know, I've been looking into wordle this is what's so strange about what things that go viral, things that trend, like Chris was just talking about with Encanto, releasing Thanksgiving, popular now. Wordle was brought out in October, but now it's a big focus for everyone online. All of our colleagues, big names out there on Twitter playing with it. And, and it's addicting, of course it is, but because it, it's, it's only available once a day, once a day. Once a day. It was my second time, and I believe we have. There's yours. <laughs> There's your score. The, the Ugh, thing that's so great yeah. about this is you can tweet your score. Um, I got mine in, in, in four tries. <laughs> not, not bad. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try yeah. to improve upon that, too. But talk to us about why this suddenly became so popular. It started in 2018, but it's only now that, you know, Jimmy Fallon and other celebrities are tweeting about it. Yeah, so it was founded by a guy called Josh Wardle, a developer, used to work at Reddit. It started as, as something that he would play with his partner, just the two of them, right? He has a background in programming, um, and he actually had a previous attempt, you know, a few years back, making it public. It didn't go very well. And, and you know, he's been talking to the media a lot this week. He has become a star himself. You know, Josh Wardle, the founder of this thing, talking about the beauty of it is its limitations, right? No push notifications. It's not in your face. It's not like the other apps on my iPhone where I'm getting hit five times a day, like, check me out, come back to me, play with me. You know, it's once a day. And it's that scarcity or restriction, which he says is what's driving people towards it. You know, it's infuriating. You know, if you do badly on your first go, like I did, then you want to go again straight away, but you can't. You've got to wait until the next morning. The wordle means are off the hook. 
I right, gotta right. say, have been entertained by them all day long. And as you say, just one a day, and as soon as you're finished with it, with it you want the next one, or you wanna play the ones that came before, and they're gone. Um, the other thing that's happening is people are mistaking Wordle in the App Store for right. other similarly named games, and Apple has a big confusing problem on its hand. I mean, that's just kudos to Wordle, right? That's just a hat tip to how good the thing is that copycats rose up the charts on the App Store, had to be removed. It's just astonishing. I mean, the game itself, it, it, it's become a cultural icon in a week. You know, people challenging themselves with what is basically a spelling bee, right? You know, they were talking, Josh Wardle's told the press about how he used to love the New York Times spelling bee, for example. That's what got him into this. You know, I think the Scrabble Dictionary only has like 9,000 five-letter words anyway, but it's something that's become so widespread, you know. And when I was talking about October, you know, there was like a dozen people each day playing in the early days of November, maybe 90 in early November. There are hundreds of thousands playing each day now, and you can see how quickly it's taken off. Is it a pandemic thing, Em? I don't know. Like... It, it, it's so basic. It's a daily three-minute exercise or one minute if you're really good. Um, you yeah. can see it staying, right? You can see it hanging around. I'm a word game buff, and I think I'd play it anyway. There's also this new thing, Ed Absurdal, which is a spin-off, right. and it basically tries to stay ahead of you, keep you at bay, changing its secret word for as many times as possible, uh, but still remaining consistent to the information it's given so right. far, I haven't tried it yet, but I'm feeling good about my yeah. chances. Again, it's just homage <laughs> to the success of Wordle. Just one really quick thing, Em. You know, in an episode of the show where we're talking about AR and VR headsets, cutting edge technology that we're desperate to get our hands on, how funny is it that we're actually hung up on a three minute game, basic code online, and all you can do is have yeah. one single try at it? Amazing. No apps, no apps, no push notifications, just a simple word game. Love yeah. it. All right. Thanks, Ed. And thank you all for watching. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Stay with Bloomberg. My colleague David Weston coming up next with Wall Street Week. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Have a wonderful weekend. The theory of what's happening with the black family, black wealth, and the fear of a black man. It's the black American experience that we truly look at, plagued by traumatic history and countless chances of accountability from all parties involved. Join us, and let's get in tune with the Transform You Black Commentary Show with your host, Marcus Art. Now here's your host. Hello, my people, my people, my people. Let me take this off. At least one ear. So you guys can better understand me. Too much echo. <laughs> it ain't working out. Um, 
regardless of the fact, though, uh, welcome to the Black Commentary Podcast Show. This is bothering me inter- terribly too much violence. Uh, so, uh, we got a great show for you guys today, and uh, let me get that uh, up. Uh, so, today we're going to be talking about something very important. We're going to be talking about MLK Day, you know, not so much the history of the day, uh, not so much Martin Luther King Jr., you know, we're we going we gonna to talk about him, uh, but we really want to zoom in and focus tonight uh, for those who are watching live tonight, uh, for those who are going to hear this on the playback. Uh, we're going to focus on like our ancestors that might have marched with them, might have been around during that time. Uh, and those who still still living right now, you know, those who um, who pass and that particular generation that might have counseled and took advice from those gener- gener- uh, that, that generation above them, okay? And maybe there were even older individuals who were still around. And it was. We do know this. Our record books will tell us that, like, there were there still was some generations, um, a generation around during that generation that marched with Martin Luther King. You know, there was maybe even like two generations above that generation that was still around uh, that gave uh, gave some insight and vis- wisdom and made it. They might have tried to warn. Uh, the the young the young they they were young around that time you know that generation that like marched in and protested with Dr King and and joined in the civil rights movement they were they were young then so for the generations that were above them that might have been their dads uh, their their grandparents that were still around and and you, you if you put that into huge perspective right. For for us that are in this generation right now, that yeah, that's like our great great great, maybe even for some great, you add another great grandparents. Now for those in the uh, who you know who um, had relatives that were around during the civil rights movement, uh, you know may, maybe it's just one or two or two generations or maybe you know for some of the newer generations just three generations apart which is not not that much think about it that's not that much so when we when we say ancestors you don't even have to go go that far back to to wonder who are your ancestors are the ones who came before you happy with how you are carrying out your life, how, how you are exercising the liberties and the freedoms that they were ultimately dying for. 
or putting their life on the risk for and maybe for a lot of others died for. Fought for. Okay. When we look at what many would call the ghetto, okay, and this is this term ghetto, right? We some don't like it, but it's become a term that for most of black America has started to embrace. You know, they 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 have embraced it fully. So to be called ghetto now is almost like a a badge of honor. Right? It's it's almost like, hey, you got this that you're associated with. And yeah, that's maybe parts of it that and and this is for the outsiders looking in, right? Maybe there's not parts of it that's that I might not necessarily want like being not really being able to uh, to live in like conditions that that's not really equal to uh, suburbs I would want to ride in a, a used car because out here where, where I see it we, we we all got if we got a used car, they're they're only three years younger. Three years older and younger. Or or mom dad's leasing. I, I wouldn't wanna live in a family where where the the men are not present or or the men are pushed out of the house. Or I don't know who my dad is because he's in prison. Or or, or I'm at risk of being pulled over, at risk of uh, going to jail, at risk of uh, getting a terrible education because I, I have to, I'm limited on what school I can go to. And and although the school might be offering this, maybe, maybe the kids are a bad influence uh, or if the school, or maybe the kids are great in this school and, and maybe the, the teachers suck because it's public education. You never know what you're going to get. So all these things, right, you know, but like, but then they, they zoom in and say, well, you know, but I do like the cool, the other cool aspects of, of the ghetto. Like, I, I love the swagger. I, I love the other things that the, the, the ghetto uh, gives us. But but it's but it's what was really crazy though, when we think about our ancestors, what they what they were really fighting for was was fighting for a a a better better way for us to live. Uh, they they wanted us to live better, okay. And and when you look at the ghetto and you, and then you you try to compare it to what the ancestors envisioned, they envisioned that, and, and this is what. This just seemed like what you know. Maybe Dr. Martin Luther King was selling, and you know, maybe you can, maybe you can comment and maybe tell me if I'm wrong or not. Being a part of this, this quote unquote American dream, where where you can own your house, you can go to college, 
where you can be able to ride in a nice, nice vehicle and, and, and not feeling like you know it's about to put you put you in a whole lot of debt where you can be able to take your take your family on vacations and and all of this other uh, great stuff that that the, the, the so-called American dream is is is, is sold to us on. And this is what what our ancestors was thinking. Like, okay, yeah, let's let's get equal rights. Let's let's, let's fight for equality. But it, it wasn't just about being able to to sit on a bus. It wasn't be uh, about being able to drink from a water fountain. And when we look at what what Dr. King. Really wanted he, and and what what a lot of the 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 other people uh, the other people uh, that were fighting alongside him and, and that were uh, that were buying into uh, what he were what he was you know, he was one of many other leaders. Let's, let's, let's remember that you know. Yes, he's he's the one that we we illuminate, and we 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 rightfully so should be putting a lot of other these strong uh, civil rights leaders up on a pedestal as as much as we do Dr. King, because there was a lot of other people who, man, went just as do just as worse, and and but it, but they able to achieve just as much as Dr. Dr. King. Uh, so right equality opportunity being able to tap into that opportunity and and we, we look at how our youth are, are, are living we look at we look at my generation and how 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 they're how they are struggling uh, and and struggle can mean anything, okay? It, it's it, for for some, it, it might not be the money part. Maybe maybe you're struggling trying to figure it out as a parent. Maybe you maybe you're struggling either trying to figure, trying to get the credit together. Maybe you got the money, but the credit is screwed up. Okay, maybe you are struggling because like you are dealing with like a criminal background. And and you want to be able to access jobs, and you can't access a job. Or you you ask, you finally land a job, and then you got to go through all of this unnecessary, oppressing things that you you start thinking to yourself, like, man, I, I wonder if if I wasn't who I was, would 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 it be would it be this way? You start, you start wondering. You start, you start doubting that we we actually have opportunity as 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 Black Americans in this country, because you you look at some of the things that limit you, or some of the things that block you, some of the things restrict you. Okay, and and then you wonder, like, do I truly have options? Is this my only option? Now, for for some. Some can can rise above that and 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 still take it back and and look back 
and, and continue to move forward and say, hey, you know, I, I'm still grateful for uh, what what the ancestors did for me and 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 and, and what and what I do have available to me in in this country that and I'm, I'm going to continue to do what I have to do. But for, for some, that's not as easy. Uh, they will allow the generation of trauma because like when you think about the skin color here, it's this is a history of trauma that continues to, to 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 sit somewhere deep in the subconscious. It's somewhere imprinted on the DNA that that that's that's is sometimes surfaced by something that triggers a, a, a memory of of what what the ancestor went through and multiplied by just the, the crap you got to deal with and for that reason we this is why we got a lot of hurt people especially especially in the in the hood a lot of hurt people a lot a lot a lot of trauma on top of trauma and what what i have found is we we are moving further away from being able to uh, try to disseminate in this culture we we we're, we're constantly trying to find ways for those who are, uh, are are triggered, you know, by this this trauma that's imprinted on on the DNA, and then again, you you multiply it by all of the other uh, things that causes PTSD and and and, and, and mental illness that's undiagnosed, uh, like you know, seeing your friend killed in the street or. You know, and then or there's poverty all around you, and 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 it makes it, it makes it very hard uh, for uh, if we allow ourselves to take ourselves down to understand and be be compassionate to, to why some people you know feel they have to take these other unhealthy options in life, and. We can easily say, "Well, man, let's just help them. Let's just help them." But, but, but that's 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 blanket to to the problem, and we we can continue to do this. This is why the biggest hypocrites aren't in the hood. The biggest hypocrites is those who who have the ability, uh, but they don't have the patience. They don't have the patience. They don't have the same compassion, the same commitment, and due diligence and, and urgency uh, that our ancestors have. Okay, we got we got those. We got black people who are in these leadership positions. You know, and I hate saying leadership positions because there's no leaders no more. We got the we got black people in in, in mayor seats. We got black people in. Uh, governor seats now. We got uh, black people in autumn, plenty of black aldermen. So I mean, you can across this country, plenty of black aldermen. We got we got black entertainers that are billionaires, and it's quite obvious that you know, a fool 
will be stupid enough to think that like you can assess the, the problem with a blanket solution without actually going and talk to the people without actually going to do what what our ancestors did you know we, when we think about the the original black party and and then we we, we compare it to this new black party total joke joke I wonder, why, what they need to rebrand themselves call call you something else you're not the black party you'll never be never be and then you you compare the the ONC in 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 a in a double ACP to the new in a double ACP joke. Drop the name, rebrand, and you look at Martin's supposed right hand man Jesse. Joke. Get rid of him, or just wait for him to die. But it it doesn't take back to the fact that he did put his body on the line, you know, during the era. But like now, who is he now? Who is Al Sharpton now? And, but 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 the big question is is why do we have a generation that has came behind them, were able to rise above the ropes, get into these these certain positions and, and some, some of them came from where, where the majority of all of the hurt, the trauma and the pain is, is happening in so-called good old hood. And it's like they, they have no memory of it. They try can you fault them for personal achievement, for personal growth, and then comparing themselves afterwards and saying, well, I'm not like that. But that's the problem now. We, we have a lot of other people that's not like you, that needs to be like you. But if we we need to get rid of some of uh, some of those other ways that like you have adopted some some of these co uh, corrupt ways that you have adopted some some of these ways of uh, of this right white supremacy system that you have adopted, my friend. And then these jokers know what I'm talking about, right? We we need to get off this plantation as a whole and. Yes, we, we want to continue to push personal achievement, personal growth. But as as we are rising, as we are learning, let's not forget to look to our left or to our right and, and, and see who we're leaving behind and, and, and maybe wonder if like we can drop some jewels on like what's working for us. Because like we can't depend on who's <laughs> so-called at the top. Uh, you know that 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 model it was working at one point, but because we got so many people who's easily sold on on power, greed, and corruption, and and, and the need for money, and and 
money to like for what? What to impress someone? So we got people storing up money to impress people. Storing up money to um, they're not even leaving it for the kids. <laughs> Most of these people who's uh, corrupt in their way, scam in their way, um, uh, towards bigger money. And when you and you might look at me and say, "Hey, Marcus, you being tough on these guys. You, you, why, why are you, why are you, why you got that mindset?" Well, they haven't, they haven't showed us nothing different, and we we keep on, we keep on. Idolizing them, keep on giving giving the decisions over to them. Uh, when we, as a people, uh, simply have to start turning on a different part of our brain and allowing that to work with with the creativity that's that's already within us. Creative people we are. Yes, we are. So, uh, how can I wrap this up? Are the ancestors happy with the ghetto and the hypocrites? They're happy. They're not happy with the ghetto. They're they're not disappointed. I would say, and a lot of people in the ghetto because it's not everybody. Uh, we know some people are callous. We know some people, if they were willing to be open to the help, and um, are not so prideful. And, and actually listen uh, to uh, those who uh, like climbing the ladder. Um, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about regular people, regular people, even like myself, that's willing to like share share some wisdom. And you know, instead of taking the wisdom and, and, and the knowledge and trying to finesse, like I, you're trying to finesse wisdom and knowledge out of somebody, <laughs> you don't have to do that. Wisdom and knowledge should come from, okay? And uh, and if we are all all of a, of a of a same type of people, which we are, regardless of race, anyways, you know, we all of a people of, of the same type of people. Especially if aliens came down, what are we gonna do? What what if aliens came down and and and, and started attacking us? What are we gonna do? Are we gonna start choosing size then, or, or or it's not gonna matter? I mean, I think that's that was another point that MLK was making. He was like, "Hey, hey, we need you to get along with us. We're willing to be along, get along with y'all, get along with us, because like we all are one people. One day we will need each other." And that point start coming across. In the military, at least, uh, some sometimes it comes across. Like, I mean, there's still issues in the military. In the military too, I can talk about. Uh, I can go all day uh, and all all day on this podcast, um, just naming crazy examples. But are the answers happy with the ghetto and hypocrites? So the, the hypocrites being again, it's just those who. Who who continue to spill? Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. 
like um, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. Uh, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this. You should do this. You should do this. You should do this. But not doing it in their character. They're not doing it behind closed doors because they're doing things to screw you over. Screw screw the entire there are people over finessing finessing the people okay they they they, they are doing it they profess they professional scammers okay con people okay they they too smart too smart that they they lack the commonality that are that are among um i can call us us commoners <laughs> So like, but um, but again, you know, they need help too because a lot of them got some narciss narcissistic tendencies. This is why they cannot drop their pride. This is why they cannot run away from the greed and and come down and actually come and and, and sit next to you and and say like, hey, you know, I'm not trying to criticize you or nothing like that, but you know, maybe you know, um, maybe you can do this, 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 this. You know, this way, this is what helped for me. And um, let's do it. Let's do it together. You know, but instead, you know, they, they, they want you to come run through the through the red tape and the hoops, you know, and uh, they're putting more red tape, more hoops on you. Yeah. You know, as, as we find ways to advance and, and make things better, um, they, they stay co-signed. On, on laws and, and, and other regulations that further push us down and, and, and put us backwards or put us right where we where they want us to. Make it very hard to move up. It's very easy to move down. You ever notice that? You know, it's very easy to you spend all your money, then you realize that like that. I'm very I'm broke into to the next paycheck. Or I'm broke into next month. You know, or you lose a job and you just—that's it. <laughs> it's like it's like it's the end. Of, it's like man, you know, I'm now waiting on unemployment. I'm waiting on something. I'm waiting on somebody to help me. They make it so hard. Even as a small business owner, you gotta deal with like things that that some of these larger corporations don't have to deal with. It's, it's, it's not equality. Doesn't sound like equality to me. It doesn't sound like that's what Emma King was shooting for, like Martin Luther King was shooting for. Okay, you know. So the wealth. <laughs> I like this. A <laughs> uh, friend watching here. He says a million steps to the top and one slip to the bottom. Exactly. Exactly. That's all. That, that's exactly what it is. You right, you right on target, right there, man. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Uh, we we got it's horrible, man. You 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 have to be consistent. You you have to be willing uh, to to dig through the trenches, uh, and then once you dig through the trenches and come out of the trenches, run through the the, the mine, the, the field mimes, and, and and then once you get to the gate, jump the gate, just to find at least one or two people who can give you the answer to something. Okay? 
and it shouldn't have to be like this. I mean, and, and then you know, I know, I, I know, I talk, I know, I talk a lot, and I push a lot about uh, mental health. If anyone has heard me talk uh, talk before, but I'm finding out that even mental health, you know, trying to get access to mental health or trying to get somebody to hear hear you vent and not be criticized uh, or or feel like, you know, if you tell somebody something that, that you you won't get criminal not uh, cri- criminalized, you know, for telling them like you know like you know, hey, I did, you know, I did this, I might end up doing this and it's, it might lead to this. What should I do? And then you tell them and you 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 got to knock at your door. Somebody knocking at your door, you know, and with a warrant. You're like, what? what? Stuff like that happens. So, you know, so we, 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 you know, it's going to take common folks like us to, to, to realize, like, to realize our issues and, and, and talk to each other and, 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 and ask each other what our issues is and say, okay, all right, maybe I know, know something that can help you with that, you know, um, and, you know, and if we can't find find something like maybe let's let's figure out how we can create something. Maybe we can take it to somebody who can put it in action. Like maybe you know, uh, or maybe we all can get together and do that. You know, put it into action. Because uh, like I don't know for for a fact. Like about six years six years ago now. You know, um, almost going on seven. You know, like I was I was looking all over the place for a place to uh, to to interview. You know, and to promote my book, like it seemed like nobody was trying to hear. Me. I said, like, what? What is this? What is this? Like, you know, why is it so easy? You know, for uh, for people who who write about BS to to get to get interviews on radio shows and all type of stuff, and then and then I have a very serious book that could help people, and and I can't get an interview. I said, screw that. You know what? I'm going to do it myself. So, so there's some things you can do yourself. There's some things that, that may take a team. There's some things that may take a professional, but a, a trusted professional, okay? A trusted professional. Remember that, a trusted professional. Okay, not just any professional, a trusted professional. And sometimes that might not mean cheap. If And if you, you know, and what I'm realizing, you know, more and more, and I, and, and, and I'm and I'm hating this. <laughs> the older I get, this is like, if you really, really want it, be patient, save up for it, and get. And like, and people like, like, man, I want it now, though. You got to get it now. That's the problem, you know. Uh, when we look at the civil rights mu- movement, they didn't get what they wanted right away. Some things just now coming. I mean, it's a damn shame. But we in a marathon. This this whole life we isn't in is a marathon. Nipsey said it. Nipsey said it best. Shout out Nipsey Hustle. You know we in a marathon. Okay. You know if you still try to run your hundred meter dash and stuff, you know like you you ain't gonna be fast forever. You know at some point you going to slow down and realize like man, you know I I need a moment to think. You know, maybe it's good that, that that it ain't coming now. You know, so shout out again to uh, to Molly. Uh, Molly, he says, uh, Molly, don't shoot him. He says, 100, 100, bro, for sure. Yeah, you know. So, um, 
shout out to everybody who who watched and listened today. Um, make sure you 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 check out the Black Commentary podcast. Uh, this is one one of one of uh, four shows that I host. Um, we we got the Kinetic PE Mix show coming back with another uh, new episode um, tomorrow, and and also on um, we got the music um, top twenty the top twenty music um, weekly picks coming on this weekend and then the Transform You Live show, um, my top show. Um, I'm going to hit you with a new episode uh, probably tomorrow and um, we'll give you Beyond the Natural uh, um, on Thursday. So check out check out all those and much, much more. Um, find more information by going to TransformYouRadio.com Transform the letter you, Radio.com That's where you can find out like more about the network uh, and um, all all the different podcasts that we offer, not just the four that I host, uh, but all of the podcasts is there. And our radio uh, is up and rolling with music. You know, as soon as you s- stop there, just press the play button, you'll be able to hear hear music um, around the clock. So that's all I got for you today. You know, thanks for rocking with me, chilling with me. Uh, until next time, many blessings, peace, and lots of love. Stay black, y'all. You, the theory of what's happening with the black family, black wealth, and the fear of a black man. It's the black American experience that we truly look at, plagued by traumatic history and countless chances of accountability from all parties involved. Join us, and let's get in tune with the Transform You Black Commentary Show with your host, Marcus Hart. Now here's your host.